Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sam Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Richard Lester's, kind of, 1980 (laughs) movie, Superman 2. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And guys, this is coming more from a TV fan perspective this week, because there's a character who's getting a TV show that I genuinely don't think I'd ever heard of before last week. Who is Black Lightning? (laughs) Good question. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's a DC Comics character i know that i hadn't actually seen that he was getting a tv series yeah Um, i was really hoping he was going to say the elongated man oh man i could talk about the elongated man all day long why is he not getting a tv series (laughs) um yeah so he's a dc character who first appeared in the 70s um and i believe he's dc's first um african-american character might even be even been their first black character certainly like you know to sort of have be major and have their own series um but i don't think he predates like black panther and luke well certainly not black panther but i don't think he even predates luke cage as being uh, an african-american hero <sighs> to be brutally honest i haven't read a lot with him in because he's not really been in very many comics like he was around a fair amount in the 70s 
and he was about in the 80s um, because there was a team in the kind of early to mid 80s called the Outsiders that was basically Batman left the Justice League and went and formed his own team called the Outsiders and it was a bit of a sort of look this team's a bit a bit edgier and a bit darker than the stuffy old Justice League um, and it was kind of second or third tier heroes um, and I think he he has then been in the Justice League since then um, I've got a feeling he might have been in there was a mid to late 2000s Justice League lineup um, that uh, what's his name Brad Meltzer wrote and I have a feeling he was in that and it was you know it was one of those you know every so often when they take teams like the Avengers or the Justice League and they give them a completely fresh lineup that's got a couple of the kind of top line ones in and then a bunch of second and third tier characters because they want to try and make it a bit more interesting and then it never mm. really works and people just clamor to see the classic team again um this happened with the well it's happened with the Justice League many times but it happened in the <laughs> 2000s and I'm fairly sure that uh Black Lightning was one of them then um, but yeah, other than that, I, I mean, basically, um, he's a guy with like lightning powers, <laughs> hence the name. Um, and I don't really know much else about him beyond that, I'm afraid, because Is as it- I say, he's 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 more. I would consider him like a, a Bronze Age character. Like that's when he debuted, and that's when most of his stuff appeared. And I've tended not to read much Bronze Age DC, so. I haven't read a lot of stuff with him in. Would it be fair to say then that really kind of the defining thing about this character in wider consciousness at least then is his race? Is that... Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, it is unfortunate that like the Black Panther, it's part of his name. That always feels a little bit on the nose. But yeah, yeah, it is, you know, in terms of his place in history and his place in DC history, um, I think the thing is, is that he's probably been a little superseded by other you know subsequently more popular black dc characters um like john stewart green lantern um and mr cyborg i guess Uh, cyborg yeah exactly so um you know i i mean i don't know because I i could be being unfair because i've not read many comics with him in but i don't know if there's if there have been if there's been much that sets him apart aside from that in terms of how he's generally being presented. So he feels like a character who nobody's really had a definitive take on yet. Um, This show, by the way, is by no means committed to, but it is from Greg Berlanti and um, is actually being developed for Fox rather than the CW. Mm. So wouldn't be crossing over with any of the other shows if it, if it does get an order. Um, I mean, I certainly have faith in in Greg Berlanti to make a DC hero more interesting on television than they have been on the page up to this point. So you know, yeah, and and you you do wonder. I saw um, an interesting little tidbit about Legion, basically doing what all of the other superhero TV shows are doing, but just flat out coming out and saying it, which is we are using the characters who the movie people have no intention of using, <laughs> yeah, and. Um, given that DC seems to be announcing the most unexpected movies um, or moving forward with characters who you wouldn't expect them to be, uh, for instance, giving two movies to, um, (laughs) maybe they have to do a bit of digging to find a character to lead a TV show now who they don't have any intention of using on the the big screen. 
I think that, it, I mean, that potentially leads to an interesting supposition, which is, I mean, well, maybe it's something that people assume is going to be the case anyway. But if let's let's say that the aim was to create a TV show specifically based around a black lead character to sort of help improve the diversity of these shows. So you look at which ones would be available and which wouldn't be used by the movies. Now, obviously, Cyborg is taken. Um, Mr. Terrific is kind of a bit nothing. You could do Mr. Terrific, I suppose. But He's on Arrow. Oh, is he? Has he been on Arrow? Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, there you go. But, um, you know, an obvious thing would be why not do a Green Lantern TV series based around Jon Stewart? But maybe it's the case that Jon Stewart is going to be the Green Lantern when they do the Green Lantern movie, if they ever eventually get to that. I think he will be one of them said from what we're Mm -hmm. hearing. I don't think that's going to be a solo movie. Um, I mean, I still think Green Lantern should be... I mean, maybe budget would be a problem, but I still think Green Lantern... It should be done as Green Lantern Core and it should be as a TV show and it should be a cop show and you should have multiple lead characters and multiple ongoing storylines. That's the best way to do Green Lantern rather than focusing on one lead one, but that's another story. (laughs) But okay, so Black Lightning, we'll see whether that show moves forward. We'll probably probably hear more on that and probably more on Green Lantern Core. Um, But we'll move to the actual... Uh, TV and movie news section now, um, and uh, we'll we'll go to the Marvel Cinematic Universe first briefly because Peter Dinklage has been cast in the Infinity War, well in in Infinity War and now whatever part two of that double act is going to be called, uh, Dinklage probably appearing in both of them. Um, there has been pictures of him with dyed, like bright red hair. Um, and James, you think you know who that means he's playing? <laughs> I mean, you say I think I know. Like there could be any other character. <laughs> like if if you're a Marvel fan who has read any amount of like Infinity War comics, Infinity Crusade, that kind of thing, it's very obvious that he is playing Pip the Troll. But then, <sighs> Pip the Troll does not sound like the kind of character that the Marvel Cinematic Universe normally uses. But that that also means that they're probably going to be using Adam Warlock, which <laughs> means they're basically doing the full like seventies disco cosmic Marvel stuff. So well, Adam Warlock, I think, has been expected for a while. We know Marvel have the rights, and I think the Aisha character, the Elizabeth Debicki yeah, character, is going to be Guardians. In Guardians. Yeah, so, she's she's going to be in some way linked to Adam Warlock. The thing is, if they're doing like Aisha and Adam Warlock, then Pip the Troll is no less ridiculous than any of that. Well, he sounds more ridiculous. He's just like a, you know, he's no more ridiculous than like an Asgardian orc or whatever, whatever. Like what? But then casting Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage is. He's a big get, you know, like the X-Men movies cast him as a... I mean, Days of Future Past probably underuses him, but he was he was the villain in, you know, the biggest X-Men movie in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Peter Dinklage is a big deal. And yeah, so like, what, what's he going to be doing as Pip the Troll? Well, Pip's thing is that he's a kind of deadpan, like, snarky character. Yeah. Okay, I can see so his, that. Yeah, exactly. So his role will to be probably be to point out how ridiculous Adam Warlock is, while also saying, by the way, all that cosmic stuff he's talking about actually is going to happen, and you know it'll kind of back up what all the crazy stuff Adam Warlock talks about about like, the universe hanging in the balance or whatever. You will trust it when Pip the Troll says, "Yeah, that's right," because everything else, like Pip, would make fun of Adam Warlock for. Are we convinced that Adam Warlock is definitely showing up? 
could, uh, could, could another could another character could like a Star Lord take his place or something like that? I mean, they could just have Pip do everything that Adam Warlock does, but at the same time, Adam Warlock's thing is like that he's the anti Thanos, like he's he's the guy who's trying to protect the Infinity Stones and collect them slash guard them or whatever. That sounds like Thor in the current uh, Marvel setup. In the current yeah, Marvel I think Thor's got, his, Thor's got other stuff to worry about. Yeah, I think, he I mean, does. You know, like Ragnarok. You, yeah, you could you could convincingly replace Adam Warlock with another character, but I don't think they're going to. I think I think we've had enough hints that Adam Warlock's coming that he actually is going to. Which personally, He's... I think is a bad idea because I find him dull. But if they're yeah, going to do it, fair enough. We've seen them. We've seen them make dull characters interesting before, and interesting characters dull. So yep. I mean, look at Captain America. He's the best. Yeah, and look at the Collector, <laughs> who is the only other character so far to really embody that kind of 70s Marvel craziness. So are we certain there's no chance whatsoever that Peter Dinklage will be playing Howard the Duck since you've Collector? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest, I, I bristled when I read that he was playing this Pip the Troll character because, um, you know, it's like you, you kind of see... Peter Dinklage being cast and everyone immediately goes, oh, could he be the Watcher? And could he be the... It's like, he does Does he have to be some... Like, does his height have to be... The in in fairness, well, in fairness the Watcher is him, massive. <laughs> like, the Watcher is giant. Yeah, so but there was... That, that would have been a, like, casting against type. But that said, when he was when he was cast in Days of Future Past, everyone went, oh, he's going to play Puck, who is the one dwarf mutant. Which, again, he was... People, I, I think, I think I was, oh, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and someone, someone asked the question of, "Oh, do you think Dinklage is going to be playing Puck? Could we be seeing Alpha Flight?" In fact, this was probably the Empire podcast, and <laughs> um, I, and they were saying, "Well, probably not, because Alpha Flight would be, you know, a big thing to bring into this, and also." No, I well, don't want to, I don't want to Alpha see Flight, just Puck. I, I'm relatively sure Alpha Flight will be in, like bundled up in the Fox deal anyway. Yeah, me too. So, yeah. no, not going to happen. Okay, well, let's move on from Marvel. Let's go over to DC because um, do you remember that Shazam movie that's coming, you guys? The, you know, it, it had... Definitely yeah. happening. The Shazam yeah. movie that is happening, yes. Well, the reason to think it is happening is The Rock... The Rock is one of the biggest movie stars in the world. They have him attached to play Black Adam. Um, And he posted on Instagram a couple of weeks ago that he'd had this really positive meeting at DC and that he thought fans were going to be really excited about the new tone of the movies that DC were coming up with and to expect to hear some Shazam news soon. Um, And then this week, uh, Deadline reported that Shazam was now being planned to be two films, that there would be a Shazam movie and a Black Adam movie separately. Yeah, so, so the that's Shazam why movie's it... not happening then. <laughs> the Black Adam movie will, and the Shazam there are, movie won't. Th- that means there are two movies that are definitely happening now. <laughs> I mean, well, why not make it is, three? Is... Three movies that are definitely happening. Is Shazam? I think they said I mean, there is. No, I think they, I thought they like did like say a... three. I thought they said three because it was one, one sep- two separate ones, and then one with them both in together. I thought was what that, they've boldly that, stated. That could be anything, couldn't it? That could yeah. be like that could be a Justice League movie, or it could be. Mm. I, I would err on what you're saying, 
there Seb which is we are more likely to get a Black Adam movie and not a Shazam one because Shazam sounds like well yeah a I mean, character it's... that doesn't really fit, fit in with the current superheroes the, the problem that you've got with with Shazam is that um, and this is one of those where you can you could probably quite nicely with terminology separate Shazam and Captain Marvel so um, <laughs> like by Shazam I mean the version of Shazam that's been around since they officially renamed him Shazam in 2011 rather than the kind of classic Captain Marvel who was in comics that were called Shazam but the character was never called Shazam is the name of the wizard that gives him his powers Captain Marvel is the name of the hero up until mm. 2011 um, and that's why the comic was called The Power of Shazam, um, because it wasn't just called Shazam because he wasn't the character. Anyway, we, we have gone in, we've gone into the whole history of the Captain Marvel name in previously, yeah. haven't we? When we been talking about Marvel's Captain Marvel. Um, but yeah, the thing is, I mean, like, I, I see no issue with them pushing forward on on doing a Black Adam movie and, and prominently basing it around The Rock. Because, as you say, the big thing that they've got in their favour is The Rock. This the is rock. a movie that The Rock wants to make, um, that he's passionate about. Um, and he's a massive star that will help sell it. And you, you can't help but see the parallels with Deadpool. You know, what makes Deadpool work is the complete and total buy-in by Ryan Reynolds into that character and inhabiting that character and making that movie work. And I, I said yeah. this when I when I retweeted the other week his um, For Your Consideration video that he did. Um, you know, he's just, he's so completely committed to that character in that series. And that is such a big part of why it worked, why it was successful and why people engaged with it. And with The Rock and Black Adam, you will get exactly the same thing. Plus, Black Adam is a more interesting character than Shazam because you've got the anti-hero thing going on. And, um, you know, the character that I'd liken him to most in terms of characters that you'd be familiar with is Magneto. In, mm. in that, you know, he was created as a villain and he is inherently supposed to be a villain, but he's far more interesting when you show him as, as fighting that. And, you know, often he does sort of give in to the fact that he feels that he can only be a villain. And what you've also got, there's a bit of Doctor Doom in there because you've got him as the ruler of a nation where actually to the people of his country, he's not necessarily as much a feared dictator because they see him as someone who actually protects them. And he does have the interests of his people. You know, he's not like a dictator who just wants power. Um, he rules his country and actually, you know, looks after his people. It's just that he is also an oppressive dictator with superpowers. So there's all kinds of stuff in there, and you can totally make an interesting film out of that. And with someone like The Rock, you've got this kind of this lead to you know to to hinge it around, and that totally makes sense. Um, I, you know, I would probably be more keen to see a Black Adam movie than a Shazam movie that has Black Adam as the villain. Um, yeah. The problem is where this leaves the Shazam movie, which is in the land of complete and total pointlessness. Well, um, can, can, does Black Adam make sense? Can you use that character without ever using Shazam? Yes. Well, as long as you, that's, I think that's you what's going to happen, isn't it? I think Surely. you need to establish um, the existence of the concept of the Marvels, which they won't call them, but you know the Shazam family of characters, because he is he he was created in the same way, and he is one of them. But you can certainly do Black Adam stories that don't feature Captain Marvel at all. Um, in Fifty Two, which is one of the best stories that's featured him, the, the weekly series that DC did in two thousand and six, um, Captain Marvel does show up, but at that point in the continuity, Captain Marvel has actually taken the place of Shazam the Wizard and is kind of living as an insane hermit <laughs> underground um, and a lot of the story focus so he makes an appearance like at a point certain point in the <laughs> that's, story that's um, the only Black Adam story I've ever read and it was yeah. really good and I wanted to yeah. read more and then I found out they were all quite bad 
I mean, you could totally take that whole story, that whole arc. You start him out as, here's this guy who's a supervillain leading a, a country and being a dictator um, who falls in love with somebody who um, who he who he rescues. Um, then she gets given powers by Shazam, and so he, they, he, he, him and her and her brother become a super-powered family, and then something really bad happens. Um, you know, th- there's an arc there. Then again, it's quite kind of a bit similar to the Magneto arc in Apocalypse, but um, <laughs> it's it's that sort of thing. Um, I, I think you would need to potentially establish that the concept of Shazam exists, but I don't think you need to have him as an active character for Black Adam to work. Um, the other problem, like I say, is that I think I just, you know, maybe there are other people who feel differently, but I don't feel that they've done anything interesting with Shazam since creating this new version of him. Um, I think it's a character that at the moment has like zero marketing potential and zero story potential. Like if they were going to do Captain Marvel slash Shazam, I think the only vaguely interesting thing you could do would be to take it back to the clean cut old fashioned version where he's basically kind of like Superman, but he's a child in a, you know, who transforms into a superhero. I was going to say, Seb, is is the current version of Shazam still a kid who turns into an adult superhero? Uh, sort of, but it's not just Billy Batson. It's like five kids or something, and they all at once transform into him. But rather than being like the you know the the the, the traditional thing with Captain Marvel, and particularly when I'm talking well, the DC Captain Marvel when they brought him into their universe, the hook was when he transforms, he still got the mind of a teenage boy, um, yeah. and the body of a of a. Because I was going to say like the the hook, the only hook I can really see people doing for Shazam is like big with superpowers yeah and and like the um would watch you know that's he's used quite well in things like the um the justice league international where you get comic effect out of the fact that he's this um you know kind of golly gee gosh kid um who sort of is really innocent and i always thought like years ago if they were ever going to they, they should do a movie based around justice league international and i always thought that they should cast brendan fraser as Captain Marvel because he would play that perfectly. Obviously, he's a bit old for that now. And if you were going to do it now, I would say Channing Tatum to do basically the same yes. thing. Um, but they won't do that. <laughs> DC don't want to do that version of Shazam because that's not the version of Shazam in the comics. And the version of Shazam in the, Shazam in the comics is now sort of... Um, I mean, I haven't read anything with him in for a while, so maybe they've changed him since, but they made him kind of a dick, basically. <laughs> um and and it's just it just hasn't really worked. <laughs> um, why is why is Channing Tatum like dicking around with trying to make a Gambit movie when he should clearly be making a Shazam movie? That's like yeah. perfect casting. It I can't be, believe. Be, yeah. yeah. Um, and you, you know, you feel like as much as these studios are putting their flags in dates right now, they're like, you know, the <laughs> fact that The Rock and Channing Tatum are signed up for movies that may or may not ever happen. It's almost <laughs> just kind of like. If we keep you on retainer, at least you won't make a Marvel movie. Vin Diesel um, still thinks that the Inhumans movie is going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Vin, Vin Diesel's uh, public persona uh, could could use some work after his uh, exploits this Christmas, especially leching on that Brazilian reporter, which has to be one of the most cringeworthy interviews I've ever seen. Yeah. But back to DC. Um, this, uh, in terms of the movie slate, it's interesting. So... 
a Black Adam movie starring The Rock, the idea of him as an anti-hero in this world where so far we've met Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. I like the idea of that. I like the idea of um, a Black Adam movie. Um, I like the idea of this Gotham City Sirens movie that they're working on. But this is still a studio that have produced three movies, none of which are very good. And currently we have dates for Wonder Woman, Justice League, The Flash, Aquaman, technically Shazam, even though that won't happen, Cyborg (laughs) and Green Lantern Corps. Then we have this Batman movie that Ben Affleck keeps saying is happening and maybe not happening and maybe the script is finished and maybe the script isn't ready. So we have no idea what's happening there. We have this Dark Universe Doug Doug Lyman movie that... (laughs) Uh, again, I'm not convinced is happening. A Deadshot spin-off that has been talked about, which probably won't happen. The Justice League Part 2, which has been pushed back into some time never. Uh, a Lobo <laughs> movie, which is supposedly being uh, worked on. A Man of Steel sequel has been announced, but we don't have a date for it. They're set, they've said they're still working on a Suicide Squad sequel, but we don't have a date for it. And then this Black Adam spin-off. And that's just reading on the Wikipedia page. These are all films that have been confirmed by the studio as being in development or announced it just sounds like a mess and black adam as much as i like the idea of seeing that film at this point you wonder whether it would just behoove dc to make individual movies and forget about the shared universe because it's not being built so much as maybe just have movies existing in the universe rather than having them all to tie in together the way that the marvel ones do you know, maybe just do things a little bit differently because so far it's not working. Um, I mean, I agree in the sense of it's not working and from a filmmaking point of view, it's not working. Um, but as a fan of DC, you know, I would always rather see stories that exist in the context of a wider universe than, than that are completely self-contained um, because, you know, it's what appeals to me about DC. Um, if anything, I think what DC should be doing, and actually, well, maybe you know, this would be a way to sort of have their cake and eat it. Um, DC should play with the thing that they have that Marvel doesn't really have to the same extent um, a history of, multiverse. which is the multiverse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and so if you want to take one of these movies and not worry about it fitting into the continuity of the others, then stick it in a different universe. But equally, if if some of the movies do work being hand-in-hand together, then keep them together. They could just have um, the anti-monitor turn up at the end of every one to be like, hey, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's... Uh, I, I, I just, it would also be a way of bringing the TV stuff into the fold again without having to be beholden to it. It's just, it's already there. The TV universe has literally established that there is a multiverse there. So why not just play with that? Um, Because, you know, it's something that DC has in its favour and it's something even that DC has actually started to do again more recently. Like DC's current multiverse setup is actually pretty good because they basically let Grant Morrison do it. Um, with multiversity and like establish a new set of 52 universes and hiving various characters off into them um, and there's a current story arc in, in Superman that's that's making use of it at the moment and it's like actually this is this is fun and it's working quite well and it's you know it's 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 the best state that the idea of the multiverse has been in since before Crisis on Infinite Earths you know <laughs> um, and I think the I think the Flash and Supergirl have used it they haven't they haven't you you know got really in depth with it but they you know it's it's just an easy way to go oh supergirl exists but she's yeah. not in the same world and we can we can you know or, or in flash you know, when we need to 
Flash had this whole thing in like the first season of this idea of one other Earth and it being this whole big deal. And then all of a sudden, by season three, they're flicking through a catalogue of Harrison Wells from different Earths. Yeah. Like, oh, let's get the Harrison Wells of Earth 17 and Earth 36 <laughs> and stuff. And it's like, yeah, go nuts. That's what DC's there for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just on one point, my one of my favourite things this week was the picture of um, Melissa Benoist on the Women's March, which was uh, just absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. She's great. Um We'll uh, move on now to Sony, who are pressing ahead with this animated Spider-Man movie. And it has been confirmed. Um, Miles Morales is the lead of this movie. We're getting a Miles Morales animated Spider-Man movie written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Um, great news, right? Uh, this this is um, a, a way to get Miles Morales onto the screen, into the wider consciousness, and then maybe we can talk about a live-action version a couple of years down the line. Well, like, I do wonder how they're going to play it. Like, is he going to mm. be... Like, are they going to do the ultimate story where he's the only Spider-Man, or are they going to do the current setup where he's the young Spider-Man? And the like, last time they did that in animation, they had to start calling him Kid Arachnid to differentiate him from Spider-Man. And it's like, as soon as you do that with Miles Morales, you've basically conceded that you're not doing Miles Morales and Spider-Man properly. Yeah, like, uh, Mars, but, the best version of Miles Morales is when he's just the Spider-Man. Right, so this is Lord and, and I would Miller, argue though, when, right? when, when he's the Spider-Man after there has been a Peter Parker Spider-Man. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be opposed to a Miles story that is in a universe where there is no such thing as Peter Parker and he is the first and only Spider-Man. If they're doing that, yeah, then I, I can mean, see that just, working. And if they're, it doing, seems to me. if they're doing it, Peter Parker is dead, like in Ultimate, then that works too. That works so well in Ultimate because so much of the story was about how does he deal with being this legacy hero. Um, if that seems difficult for is an animated kids Spider-Man. film, though, doesn't well, it? That's, yeah, that's exactly. what I was about to say. Like, you can't and open a kids film with yeah, you can't open a kids film with "Hey, Spider-Man's dead." Yeah, in which case, I hope it's in a world where there's no such thing as Peter Parker and he's the only Spider-Man. I really don't I, want it to be he's Spider-Man the second, like while there is another Spider-Man around, because in in Marvel comics at the moment that is not working. Um, yeah, I would agree. So. Yeah. What what if though he was like taking over from Peter Parker? What if they said what if it's like, oh Peter Parker used to be Spider Man but he retired yeah. and, and I'm Spider-Man. Oh, that that's fine. That's that works as well. Doesn't have you know the same kind of emotional impact, but equally you can do great stories with that. It's still like basically I I like him working as a legacy hero, but what what Marvel have never really managed Marvel have in recent years started to do this legacy hero thing the way that DC was used to. What Marvel haven't really managed to successfully do is get rid of the previous one. Like they hedge their bets by keeping the previous one around while still doing the new one. So you've got mm. two Spider Men and you've got, to, I know um, Odinson doesn't call himself Thor, but basically you've got two Thors, you've got two Captain Americas, um, you've got, you know, well, okay, again, Tony Stark isn't around at the moment, but I could foresee a point where you've got Riri as Ironheart and you've got Iron Man. It's just. Um, you know they don't commit to it and and DC have actually only recently had that problem by bringing back the old Wally West while they've still got a different Wally West so it's not just that they've got multiple flashes it's that they've got multiple Wally Wests in their universe uh, which really confuses the heck out of things but 
um, yeah, I just, I just think it really dilutes it if you've got two characters with exactly the same name, and I think it ruins Miles if you call him anything other than Spider-Man. It takes away the point of what he's supposed to be. The point of what he's supposed to be is he is a mixed-race kid who is Spider-Man, not he's a cheap copy of Spider-Man or he's a bit like Spider-Man with a different name. He what is if it's, Spider-Man, and that's that's what if how it's you like have to a, play him. What if it's like a, 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 a almost like a training movie, like? Peter Parker is gearing up for retirement and he or he, he he's getting too old for this shit and Miles kind of turns up gets his powers and Peter decides to train him so we kind of Miles is our lead he's trained by Peter Parker and then like becomes the Spider-Man in that universe going forward because I think they'll want to introduce the idea in this film of a Miles Morales taking over from Peter Parker because then that allows that allows for that in live action as well, um, and and also this is Lord and Miller writing the script. They're not directing, but the fact that Lord and Miller are writing the script suggests to me that they've got they they will find a hook to make this work well, because I mean their James, thing James is taking terrible concepts like, based on the Lego Movie. James knows how amazing Lord <laughs> and Miller are. So. Tell the listeners, James. I've not seen it. Why haven't you seen it? I just I'm not into Lego. What's coming out next month? <laughs> Lego Batman. <laughs> We're gonna have to have some stern words, aren't we, James? <laughs> I like stickle bricks. <laughs> well, we all like stickle bricks. I used to post them into our VCR as a child. I thought they, I thought I thought it was a letterbox, and I I'm was surprised they still existed when you were a child. I was just gonna say, how did how did they still have VCRs when you were a child? I'm <laughs> <laughs> not that young. <sighs> okay well um that was the comic book movie and tv news section uh, we will move on now to our spoiler filled discussion of as i said before uh, richard lester's superman 2 um we're not doing the donner cup although we will discuss we'll, we'll it probably talk about it <laughs> um but yeah we will be back with that discussion after we take a little listen to um something from the movie You are the one they call president? I am. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. Good. Rise before Zod. No. Kneel before Zod. You are not the president. No one who leads so many could possibly kneel so quickly. I'm the man they're protecting. I'm the president. I'll kneel before you if it will save lives. It will. Starting with your own. I do now, I do for the sake of the people of the world. But there is one man here on earth who will never kneel before you. Who is this imbecile? Where is he? I wish I knew. Oh, God. Zod. Okay, so that was um, some Superman 2 for you. Um, and 
I, I don't think we can really start anywhere else than with all of the production stuff around this movie. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a very brief overview, and I think it's probably best to hand over to our expert, Seb, on this one. Um, uh, but the, the, the short explanation is that um, Richard Donner, who directed Superman in 1979, was it just the year before, Seb? 78. 78 but it was a, it was a pretty fast turnaround b- between these two movies because Richard Donner while shooting the first movie had shot two thirds of Superman 2 as well um, and that's how you can get um, you know Zod at, in the start of Superman because uh, as Terrence Stamp because they were filming the back to back and they were they were just gonna throw him in as the villain in the second film and that's why Gene Hackman's still around um, so he shot two thirds of the footage for that, but then was told to stop and focus on getting Superman ready and released, which he did. Um, there is then some confusion as to whether Richard Donner walked away or whether he was fired. Um, but they replaced him with Richard Lester, um, who came in and shot the rest of the movie and also had to reshoot about half of what Richard Donner had shot already as well, um, for kind of like legal guild reasons. Um, and so we get this this weird Superman 2 movie that is a hodgepodge of footage from two different directors um, shot, you know, kind of like two years apart. Um, and sometimes that really shows. Um, and also a, a, a movie that kind of has been made using two different scripts, two different versions, because there are big set pieces in the movie that we see that weren't originally planned in the Donna version. Um, there's and, a, there's also sort of the uh, uh, we talk about this in a bit, but the structural difference of the Donna version is based on the first film having a different ending. Yes. Um, so even that, you, you know, it <laughs> doesn't line up completely. Because was was it supposed to be the ending of Superman was supposed to be the ending of Superman two? That- Pretty much. So it's the um, basically in what's supposed to happen. Obviously, it's not as clear because we haven't actually seen an alternate version of it. So we don't know exactly how it would have ended. But essentially, in Superman one, um, he would have uh, rescued Lois and um, start. I don't know if the missile would still have hit because it must have done because Donna. Like Lester didn't shoot anything for Superman One, so but no. in Superman One you've got all the footage of you know Lois dying and him him then turning back time. But the turning back time essentially is supposed to happen at the end of Superman Two, uh, which creates even bigger problems than it does happening at the end of Superman One. But we'll <laughs> come to that. Um, so what's what was supposed to happen was um, he's supposed to stop one of the nuclear missiles and throws it into space, and that's what actually I think in Superman One does he still stop one of them, and it's just the other one that he doesn't. Maybe maybe that's it and maybe it's just that Lois just isn't as dead as she appears to be. Anyway the point is he throws a nuclear missile into space and that is what explodes the Phantom Zone and frees yes. the criminals um, but um, obviously what you know that isn't shown to happen in Superman 1 so in Superman 2 in the Lester version they have to come up with a different opening mm-hmm. and then it doesn't have the turning back time ending as a result so they have to do some other things instead to to reset certain things and we should we should point out to uh, listeners who might not be you know intimately familiar with superman 2 that richard donner's cut of the movie was this legendary thing for years and years that mm. people were desperate to see and in 2006 um the donner cut actually got put together in some form and released on DVD. Um, I haven't seen that. We we haven't... Th- that's not what we're going to be actually, you know, 
talking about here, we're talking about the theatrically released Superman 2. Um, but Seb, but you, I have, you so. must have seen <laughs> the Donnacombe. Yeah, so when we when we get to the relevant bit, bits of the proper film, I'll, I will probably talk about some bits that are different or some extra bits that are that are in Donna but not Lester. Um, am I, think I, it's what, am I, I right maybe in thinking worth... that... Sorry, am I right in thinking that when the when the Donner Cut did eventually turn up that people were like... Because it was... It, I think the popular narrative around Superman 2 is that, yeah, it's, it's still quite a good movie. It's not Superman good, but it's still quite a good movie and Terrence Stamp's a great villain and there's still a lot to like but oh man imagine if we'd have seen what richard donner actually actually that was, was kind of do. although i think that was i think that only became i think that only really became a bit more of a narrative sort of more in the the 2000s and when there started to be more talk about the donner stuff because certainly i you know i remember you know not so much growing up but certainly maybe you know in the, from the sort of 90s in the early 2000s superman 2 was always talked about as the best superman movie and you know and it was like oh it's the greatest superhero movie ever and that kind of thing before you know like x-men and spider-man came along um but that then seems to have shifted into a as you say the sort of well the first one is better the second one is is great but has problems and the donner cut would have fixed those problems um but then but truth, then when the donner cut turned <laughs> up i think yeah. people kind of went Oh yeah. no, it doesn't really. <laughs> it's I. I think there are things that it improves on, and again, we'll we'll come to them. There are there are whole scenes that are that would have been Donna scenes um, that are great, and that it's a shame that the final film doesn't have one particular one which they never actually filmed. And in in the Donna cut that was released, it's made up of um, screen tests from Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder cut together. Two different <laughs> screens that you. What you've got is you've got Christopher Reeve screen test where he looks quite different. He's got different glasses and a different haircut playing Clark. And then you've got Margot Kidder's screen test where Christopher Reeve had already been cast and he looks much more like the actual Clark of the films. And they intercut between the two and it's bizarre. But it's a fantastic scene. And it's like, I wish that scene had been in the the final film. There's also... mixed um, kind of opinion on whether the Brando stuff improves it or harms it but either way there's certain things about the Brando stuff that's better um, anyway the, the point is I think it, in some ways it improves and in other ways it's much worse like there are a couple of specific things that the Donnacut does again you know I, I won't spoil them now we'll, we'll do them chronologically but that actually are, are far worse than what Lester does <laughs> um, so I think that I think the point is there is no perfect cut of Superman 2 and actually the problem Problems that Superman 2 has are more inherent to whatever version of the film. Like it's, you know, they're not something that can be solved by just going back to what the original plan was. I think at a conceptual level, Superman 2 has some some pretty big problems. Mm. Um, <laughs> do, so the, the Donnacut is interesting, but yeah. do we all um, agree as a podcast that we prefer Superman to Superman 2? I, I certainly do. Is that is that um, an opinion? I, you guys I'm not share? sure actually. Like I'm, See, I'm, I didn't love Superman, so I think there are there's a lot more I think I prefer about Superman two than one, and I'm not sure if that's just like familiarity with the story of Superman one. I'm going to say something possibly really controversial and possibly <laughs> unexpected here. Now this it. is with a qualification that I'll have to wait until we see something else to confirm that it, it doesn't come off worse, but. I'm not even certain that Superman 2 is the second best Superman movie. <laughs> Man of Steel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Man of Steel, yeah. Man of Steel's done. Um, no, you don't like I, Superman Returns more than they do you? 
Uh, I did at the time, but time has not been kind to that film. Um, no, I I kind of think that in some ways Superman 3 is more successful at what it's trying to do <laughs> than Superman 2 is. I remember loving um, Superman 3 as a kid. So oh, well, I loved it as a kid because it was the first one I saw and it was the one I grew up with and maybe that helps. I did go through a period of time where I, I really hated it because when, when I was a teenager and I didn't want superheroes to be like at all silly or funny. Um, I think I went off it a bit, but like again, you know, this isn't the Superman three podcast, but there are some things about Superman three that are really, really good, and the problems that Superman three has, which you know, undoubtedly it has, I don't think they harm the integrity of it as much as the problems of Superman two harm the integrity <laughs> of Superman two. Um, okay. I kind of yeah, I I think Superman two has for me has got worse over time. Like I think it I think it looks far worse now than it than I might have thought about it. 10 15 years ago um i think the thing i like about superman 2 that i don't like about superman is that it just sort of gets going and like straight away is telling a story uh, as opposed to taking uh, sweet time with the origin (laughs) i love i love the first half of superman i yeah (laughs) no i didn't that was the that was the bit of superman one that bored the crap out of me just waiting for christopher reeve to turn up do you do you like then, James, that that it opens with this set piece in Paris? Because you wouldn't like the Donner Cut if that's the case, because the Donner Cut takes ages to have any action, and the first action <laughs> sequence is um, th- when they get to Niagara Falls. It's it's funny actually. I was thinking when I was watching the intro sequence, I was thinking how like good that the way they'd done it was by sort of cutting in scenes from the first film. Especially because I was thinking this was probably in an era before, like, certainly before DVD and, like, well mm. before, probably before home VHS was very big as well. I did not enjoy it. <laughs> really? Are you serious? It's, I don't, I, I didn't it, enjoy I like rewatching it. the first film, no, for the first one. <laughs> no, I, I, like I thought it, it was a really concept, smart way of doing it. It's a smart way of doing it, but it's badly cut together. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really not, badly paced. And it's really it's not jarring well cut together, with the way but... that it opens with... Zod and Ursula Non that you kind of think you're watching the start of this movie and but you're not mm-hmm. you're watching you're watching the first so Superman that's... I think I, I think what it is as well and obviously all of this production stuff comes into it but the the way that this Superman franchise goes and obviously it's it's the um it's the Salkins Salkins who produced mm. this there, there is there is a sense going through the Superman franchise that um you know, there are kind of like dodgy dealings and weird financial stuff happening in the background. And the first film seems like this almost like lavish, um, almost like they, they they overswung with Superman, that they got so, so much like top tier filmmaking talent involved in that film and took it so seriously and produced a film that um, I think, while not perfect, has some just... It feels like a real classy movie um, for a late, you know, one of the early blockbusters. Um, whereas this feels like something uh, <laughs> a little bit more calculated, trying to cash in on the on the last movie and and the way that it's the way that it is hodgepodge together. And I I don't know, there's there's, there's something about this movie that doesn't doesn't sit right with me compared to the first one. As- and I think it starts off with the kind of the trailer at the start almost, or the like, here's what you missed last time. I think that would be, uh, I think that would be a fairer criticism if the film was made separately. 
but I think the fact that this film was always the second part of a two-part movie... I think it, you know. I think I don't think you can call it a cash in on the success of the first no, film because I don't, I they don't were already mean it like making I, this, and it's it's to join the two. You know, it's it's not so much, uh, you know. Oh, you loved the first one, so we've done another one. You know, the the stuff that they do to link it to the first is because the first film had this apparent non sequitur yeah. of a scene at the beginning with the three criminals who never turned up again, <laughs> and it's reminding you what happened in between then and and now. I I uh, I, I think. I don't mean it is a ca- it feels like a cash in I mean I can feel you you feel more in the movie you feel it's more of a product I think than a than like a, a piece of art in I do agree with you in the sense that Richard Lester had this thing of like oh let's throw in loads of like weird sight gags and comedy bits which feel very much like well now we know kids are going to see this movie so let's put in some stuff for the kids because I can't, and like, I don't understand why any serious director would be like, during this very long sequence of the Kryptonian criminals, like using their super <laughs> breath on the public. Yeah. Let's put in loads of like stupid tiny jokes, like ice cream flying in someone's face and a guy in roller skates going backwards. Mm. Like, see, I think there's some stuff that that Lester puts in to lighten it that I think is is positive. Oh, there are a few um, bits, and like, like the you bit... know the, the Paris sequence would be a good example of that. But... <laughs> Um, the yeah that that you know we're jumping. I was thinking ahead the film, but that wind blowing sequence. But the funniest, man, is the funniest stuff bit in with the, the movie billboard. is Gene Hackman, like Gene Gene Hackman doing Luther again is. I mean, because he's almost here as the light comic relief, you know, because he's not the main villain. He's the villain. Yeah, who's although, to... again, he disappears for an hour. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> oh, like, uh, yeah. that that was another thing with the with the with the gap in production. So. Most, uh, I think all of Hackman's stuff had been shot with Richard Donner and he didn't come back. Um, there was certain talent involved in the film that didn't come back, like um, filmmaking talent, like the editor didn't return once that um, once Lester came in. And um, obviously Marlon Brando, there was, as you said, Seb, because it's in the Donner cut, there was some footage mm. of Marlon Brando. It's real jarring early on when you're like who's superman talk- oh he's talking to his mum I, yeah. have- I mean i i, I, th- I think actually the, the i think the bigger issue is right at the very start so that that opening sequence with with zod um murdering the, the the guard and whatever and then them getting arrested that's all lester so that's not even even the bit you know the krypton bit that that's not in the donner cut um, the Donner cut just reuses this the scenes and does it from a slightly different angle, but re- redoes the opening of Superman One. And I, what, what's jarring is if you've watched Superman One and you remember Jor El being the one who condemns them and yeah. stuff, to have a completely different person <laughs> putting them on trial and mm. saying that stuff, it's like, well, I think the stuff with the with with his mother and I actually because I do sort of think that some of the that con- the conversations that he has with her. Um, are better than the conversation with uh, Jor-El. Um, what's weird as well is when Lex goes to the fortress and is talking to a hologram, that was shot as if he's talking to Marlon Brando. Oh, right. And then um, actually cut in with the Susanna York stuff. So in the Donner cut, it's it's the Brando hologram that he's talking to. <laughs> and it's a completely... Like, it is weird because it's like, obviously, Lex's half of the conversation is the same, but the hologram's half of the conversation is completely different. Um, so that is, I'm pretty sure I can't remember because because when I rewatched, I was kind of skimming through. 
the Donner cut just to watch the scenes that are completely different. But I don't think the Donner cut has such an on-the-nose explanation of, well, in the unlikely event that a nuclear missile or a nuclear bomb <laughs> happens to go into space and explode nearby, they could be freed. I don't think it goes quite that far. <laughs> um, well, shall we, shall we get into... I think the best way to attack this is chronologically, but should we get into the movie and... I think it's impossible to escape all of this production detail, but um, maybe try and talk about this movie on its own merit, um, because we, you're right. So we have that we have that sequence at the start recapping the first movie, um, and then we have this big uh, Paris sequence where some terrorists have hijacked the Eiffel Tower and are going to set off a nuclear bomb. Um, their, 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 plan is, their plan is what, to just drop the nuclear bomb in the lift in the Eiffel Tower. I think, I think they're using it to blackmail. They don't actually intend to detonate it. They, but they have demands that are left vague, and, do they, but they don't intend to detonate it. But they dro- do they drop it by accident, then? Is that what happens? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Superman, no. It's the, don't the police shoot up there? Yeah, or the, the police yeah, the set police off the, the police set off the charges, it. and that causes yeah. the lift to drop, and that pulls out the detonator thing, hmm. which sets can off I, the timer. I, I've got to say that I think my favourite thing about this entire sequence is the fact that um, you learned that that Perry White sent Lois to go and investigate what was going on, um, you know, and sort of, you know, I want my best reporter at the heart of it. But when Lo- when Lois gets there, she doesn't know that there's a nuclear bomb. In other words, Perry White <laughs> sends her to Paris to cover a nuclear a potential nuclear explosion, but doesn't tell her that there's a nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nice one, Perry. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's a weird sequence for Lois because she doesn't, she doesn't do anything, does she? I mean, so she gets herself into the Eiffel Tower, uh, which I thought was fun seeing her like a way in, uh, and then because uh, I couldn't remember what happened, I was like, "What? How, what's what's she gonna do when she gets up there?" So she climbs all the stairs, and then she climbs onto the lift, and then the lift goes up, and she's hiding underneath the lift. And oh, are they gonna discover her? But they never discover her, the the villains, and she never impacts the plan in any way. And then Superman turns up and saves her, and takes the takes the bomb, throws it into outer space. Like what's, I, I I couldn't get my head around what like what what they were trying to do with Lois in the sequence and why why she was there other than other than just Superman saves Lois. That's, well, this that's is a, how we want to I start mean, the movie. It's it's weird because he sort of like his instinct is not to go. It's, his instinct is not there is there's a terrorist situation going on in Paris. I need to go and stop it. It's more there's oh, a terrorist Lois situation going on in Paris. Oh, Lois is there. I'd better go and save Lois. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a. I mean, maybe that's setting the tone for the movie being about the fact that, you know, Clark puts his feelings for Lois above his feelings for protecting humanity, (laughs) which is, you know, pretty much what the film is about. Mm. But um, maybe that is the reason. I don't know. But it's that's, you know, that's that's the only (laughs) interpretation I can read. I do find it bizarre that it's it only becomes an issue for him when he learns that Lois is there. Um, you know, Do you think he, it's he only doesn't... that? I think I think they play it fairly ambiguously. Like I wasn't watching that going like, oh, he doesn't care. I was thinking he's <laughs> like, he's thinking I need to sneak off and go to Paris even before Lois. He knows Lois is there. Mm. Like that's the way I read that scene at least. Mm. Do you, did they shoot that in Paris? Was it shot at the Eiffel Tower? Yeah, or... yeah, 
Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, I, I was like, they're either doing a very good job here or, uh, you know, of, of recreating the Eiffel Tower or they actually went there. Um, I quite like that they used Paris in that it makes Superman a kind of global hero. And also, yeah. like normally when you see Paris in films, it's getting like destroyed by meteors or something. It's like basically being a whipping boy. Well, bear in mind that this was shot in the um, in the UK, um, so <laughs> True. True. it would have been a lot easier for them to get over to Paris. If anything, it's almost <laughs> surprising that they took the time to go to Niagara Falls because that was further away from the production. <laughs> than, uh... Yeah, I mean, they they are they seem to be those two sequences seem to be the you know what the first half of the film hangs itself on and i get maybe maybe that's another another reason why i'd say it feels like a bit more of a product because when you compare it to the first film and how ponderous that first hour hour and a half is in superman um the fact that we're kind of that, that we do have these kind of like two action sequences to hang the first the first half hour hour around instead um feels different um Having said that, that like it does take a long time for everything in this film to come together because we've got the we've got the Clark and Lois stuff, which is happening separately from the Lex Luthor stuff, which is happening separately from the Zod stuff, and of those kind of like three groups of characters, they none of them really come together until Luthor goes to the White House, which is over an hour and a half into the movie, I think. I was going to say it's definitely like Superman doesn't find out that Zod and the rest are like even a thing until three quarters mm. of the way into the film like it's yeah they leave it crazily late yeah so it's it's um i i did kind of like the the stuff in the first half of this movie that i did like was um like clark and lois h- hanging out at the daily planet um and just just the, uh, and and i did like some of the i liked watching Christopher Reeve in full bumbling Clark Kent mode in in the Niagara sequences, um, you know, a, a, l- a little bit more than the actual than the actual you know people diving in the water and Superman swooping in and saving people that mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I think because I think that's the, I think that's the thing that I'm always drawn towards about Superman is the is the 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 double you know, the, the Clark Kent persona and the Superman persona. And that's probably why I love mm. Lois and Clark so much is because that's 90% of that show. Whereas in, <laughs> in other kind of screen adaptations of Superman, you don't, there isn't really the time in a movie to spend that much time with Clark Kent. Um, as you know, it's as fair to say Zack Snyder was not into spending much time with Clark Kent. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, and especially when your second movie becomes a, a Batman movie, mm-hmm. um, but yes, yeah, so I, I, that's that's the stuff that I was really drawn to, and um, I thought it was, I thought they do a really good job with the the way that they draw out Lois finding out that Clark is Superman. Um, well, this this is. I mean, I don't know. I know you don't want to spend the entire film making a comparison to Donna, but I I think in terms of just. I, like that part of the film is in in the first half is I think the stuff where the Donna cut really does improve because you get two scenes that that differ and um, all that are kind of you know new scenes well not new because you know they were shot before but um, that expand on that more um, so you still have the bit at Niagara Falls like ev- everything at Niagara that was actually shot at Niagara Falls um, and in the hotel and stuff was uh, Donna 
Um, so like even the the bit with like the the bellhop that weirdly is played by Sir Anthony Sher, um, <laughs> like that that is Donna stuff. But bef- but the Donna cut has already before they get to Niagara Falls has already established um, that Lois has this suspicion about Superman because the opening scene, at least after you do the the Zod reprise in the in the Donna cut, rather than having the all the Paris stuff, they're just in the office at the Daily Planet and Lois is reading uh, an article about Superman with a picture of Superman and she sees Clark arrive and she's and I can't remember what it is that triggers her getting a bit suspicious, but then you've got this lovely bit where she gets a marker pen and draws a hat and glasses and suit <laughs> on a picture of Superman and, and holds it up to Clark and goes, Look. Um, then she throws herself out of the window um to get him to save her and he rushes downstairs and manages to save her from the street by blowing her onto an awning that she bounces off and then he zips back up to the office and looks out the window and is like what are you doing um so you've had all of that then they get to niagara falls and you've got the same sequence with him rescuing the boy um and clark being off at the hot dog stand and stuff what you don't have is the scene where lois throws herself into the water and you can tell if you watch that the scene with her throwing herself in the water is shot in a completely different place i'm not even sure if it's at niagara falls or if it's somewhere else (laughs) entirely probably somewhere else entirely because i doubt they would have gone back Mm. um and so instead of because you've already had her throwing herself out of the window that's replaced in and the whole bit in the room with him falling into the fire isn't there instead the way that she gets the moment of um like actually knowing and it is like as i say if they had shot this properly for the film i think it would be the best scene in the film but it's the scene that they reconstruct from screen tests instead um she confronts him with a gun and shoots him and he stands there basically the moment that she fires the gun he he does the christopher reeve transformation and like stiffens his back and takes off his glasses uh. and changes his voice and he goes of course you realize if you'd been wrong clark kent would have been killed and she goes what with a blank um and it's it's such a good but even before that you've got a whole back and forth with them talking about it and it's just such a good scene (laughs) see i was about to i was about to massively disagree and be like no no way is that better than what they shot but yeah okay (laughs) fair enough (laughs) because i i I still do think it it works in this version that we get and because I mean, Seb, I remember us talking on the, the first time around and you you being so clear about how much, how great Christopher Reeve's performance was and all the stuff that he does between, you know, to differentiate himself from Clark and Superman. And because we get to see more of Clark here, I think it's it's more obvious. And I think they do a really good job of selling you on why Lois might be suspicious of Clark, mm. but then also how she after throwing herself into Niagara Falls or whatever and and him not diving in to save her like how there's there's enough there that she goes yeah I guess I could have been wrong um (laughs) um there's an interpretation that I like as well I think I think you can kind of draw this from the performance because of how over the top he gets with some of the Clark stuff but the there is a kind of subconscious thing where he kind of wants her to find out because mm. that's because you know he's in love with her and he knows that he can't be with her as Clark and that if she knew he was Superman <laughs> they would be together but he can't just straight up go I'm Superman and so all the times that she tries to test him um, you know he has to find a way to to stop that but equally the fact that he stumbles over and falls into a fire is such a ridiculous <laughs> I mean she way. does she does say doesn't she like he says I'm not sure why I did that and she says maybe you wanted to Oh yeah, she so like it's in the text. Yeah, yeah. So it is in the yeah. But I just yeah, I, but I like that even before that, like he's getting more and more ridiculous with just how over the top Clark he's being. 
and it's almost like you know he is pushing it more into being a, a ridiculous performance and it's like look won't you notice kind of thing <laughs> walking in front of a taxi and getting hit by it probably qualifies yeah. for that <laughs> Yeah, that that feels like a Leicester. Maybe. That, <laughs> yeah. that must be a Leicester one. So, like, and the fact that nobody comments on this, no one goes like, "Oh, that guy's probably Superman." <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the the? Because that has to that relationship has to underpin everything that's going to come in the film. It's going to underpin the 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 kind of how Zod is able to come to power. Uh, or have some kind of control over humanity before Superman comes back. We have to entirely buy into the Superman-Lois relationship. And I I think I did um, in the first movie, and um, it works again here. Weirdly, again, the thing that is distracting is that you are cutting between these kind of, these this footage that was shot two years apart. Um, mm. And while I really want to buy into it, you know, when we're cutting to a Christopher Reeve who is noticeably more muscly than he is you know even two minutes before on screen or i mean and margot kidder looks different she looks like mm. a, a little bit uh skinnier a bit more gone in the in the yeah, Lester footage. Something, they do feel like in all of the stuff that's Lester shot because there's like there's the stuff with the all the stuff with the orange juice in the office like they don't have that spark and i don't know if it's partly because you know i know that Margot Kidder was one of the people who I think was more on the Donna side of things, but was basically contractually she was pretty bound to come there's, back. There's a there's um, an edge to her in those scenes. You're right. There's an mm. edge to Kidder's performance that she she seems like she's got a little bit more bite to her, but not mm. in a kind of spunky Lois bite in a in in a like there's a glint in her eyes that she's not enjoying yeah. this. And I think they've 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 got a little bit more chemistry and a little bit more spark because I think they're a bit more relaxed about it. In, in all of the stuff that was originally shot. And I think that shows, you know, even as early as like that screen test scene, you know, you, you can see why Margot Kidder was cast because she immediately has this chemistry with Christopher Reeve, even though they're, you know, they're just screen testing at that point. Mm. Um, and yeah, they, I've, I've, I've always kind of thought that there, there are bits in Superman 2 where, as you say, yeah, it's a little, it's a little bristlier. And yes, yeah, that's, she doesn't that's, seem that's as, the right as, word keen to be there I think. <laughs> no, it's br- not as playful as well um, yeah and it's fun because because one of the things that um i uh, i've always particularly liked about reeve and uh kidder is i mean superman is one of these characters who can feel very sexless even though he has this <laughs> romance at the center of his story um there's there's that bit, isn't there, in the first Superman when she's interviewing him on the rooftop, and there's the kind of the mention of the her pink. underwear. Yeah, yeah, and and there's, I that kind of has to play into things here, and I think it does early on. There's there's the census, but you know, with them with them in that room together in Niagara, and and the bed and the honeymoon suite, and them them playing a couple. There is this there is this sexual tension between them as well. It's not just it's not just this romantic spark. There's a sexual tension there. And this plays into my big question about the movie that I wanted to ask you guys. Does Superman in this film give up being Superman to get his end away? Is that what happens? <laughs> I mean, he does. He, is that, is no that, that's, purely, that's purely the reason because he, yeah. he couldn't have sex with her as Superman. <laughs> 
Yeah, although this interestingly, is... again, to make a Donnacut comparison, in the Donnacut, they already do beforehand, and then he decides to have his powers taken away. Um, so what? But but what's the motivation for him there? It's more that it's basically he says that he he wants to give up being Superman so that he can spend his life with her, and his dad's like, well, if you want to do that, you can't, if you want to be one of them, you can't have your powers anymore. Um, right. But... Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's even even in the the proper cut as it stands. I don't think it's he has to lose his powers so that they can for physical reasons because we're not going down the man <laughs> the of Kevin Smith of Kleenex yeah. or the Kevin Smith route. Um, I think it's more a symbolic thing. You know, it's a. Uh, I it, think it's more he makes the decision that he has to not be Superman <laughs> in order to be with her. Full stop. The yeah. way yeah. that it works, though, the way that it works, he literally comes out of the you know out of the pod or whatever and mm. then cut to them wrapped in each other's arms in a blanket yeah. but that that shot in the donner cut you see beforehand and then it's like the morning after where mm. he gets up and basically go like she she comes out and finds him already in that conversation sort of um, because i mean that the fact that they rearranged it suggests that it was on lester's mind that mm. like he you know physically they wouldn't have been able to consummate yeah. their relationship but this is why it's bizarre that Superman Returns... It, it's not even that Superman Returns is a sequel to Superman 2. It's a sequel to the Donner Cut because it has to be that way round for his son to have powers in Superman Returns. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, th- I, is, I think there's, there's a really interesting question at the heart of the film, really, which is, like... Okay, if this was... If this happened in... Man of Steel. We would destroy Zack Snyder for it. We would absolutely destroy Zack Snyder. Yep. Because and I don't. I can't figure out if it annoys me or not. Because if it does, if I don't like that this happens and that Superman makes this decision, if I turn around and say this decision is not something that Superman would ever do, um, the entire you you can't really be positive about the film. The entire film hinges on this and on him making this bad decision and this mistake. Um, and I don't know if it's hypocritical of me to say that I think that the film, I think it's okay for Superman to make that mistake and in that moment make that decision because there's sort of, and I, I mean, again, I, James, I don't know what your feelings on this are in, in a general sense of how you approach superheroes, and it's not a dissimilar thing to what happens in Spider-Man 2. Um, I, I can't, On the one hand, there is a part of me that goes, you know, Superman is a superhero who has these powers and he's supposed to use those powers to do right by the world and look after people. Um, and there shouldn't ever come a point where he says, right, I think I've done enough now and I can stop. Yeah. But equally, does he not have the right to ultimately say, actually, I've done enough and, and I can stop? Because it's like, if you're, if you're a fireman or a policeman, you do get to retire eventually. <laughs> this and is... I think... I think Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think maybe a way to look at it is, at this point, Superman doesn't know about General Zod. Um, in in the Superman movies world, um, you know he has done a lot to reduce and prevent crime, and he's put Lex Luthor in prison. And there aren't a load of super powered villains running around, you know, making things worse for for people. No, you know, he doesn't know that at the time. The fact that he does discover it is why he realizes he has to come back. Um, I'm I'm sort of I, I don't I can't figure out where I stand on should Superman ever be allowed to quit. There's or not. A, there is a way of doing it, and to make the Spider-Man Two comparison, Spider-Man Two shows like a, a, a kind of an, an emotionally broken Peter Parker whose powers mm. start failing him, who decides to yeah. turn away from the spider from the Spider-Man persona. Um, the execution in this film, and this is why I say it's. I I like that the that the Reeve Kidder relationship has that spark of sex in it. I do not like that the way the film plays out. It presents it as I want to have sex with Lois Lane, so I'm giving <laughs> up my powers. And I mean, it's, that, and it's not a, it's not a decision arrived at over a long period of agonizing. <laughs> no, no, yeah, that it's, kind of thing. And he doesn't spend a bit of time going around the world making sure that things are going to be okay after he's gone. Or stuff. Yeah, see, my, he's not paying attention to the wider world at all. My problem with the like dichotomy is that it's not. That with the dilemma, sorry, is that it's not set up like it, it's something that happens mm. almost between scenes. Like he, there's no sort of implication that he can't physically be with Lois Lane, and there's no like setup that he would have to give up his powers if he gave up being a superhero. And there's like, no suggestion I mean, that he's struggling with being yeah, Superman. And there's no suggestion something... that his relationship with Lois is. <laughs> is hampered by being Superman. Like, it's literally mm. being Superman has brought him closer to Lois, if anything. Yeah, yeah I think... I mean, the, and, and also, like, it's not done with her consent of sort of, well, what if I don't actually want to be with Clark? <laughs> that's no, the, that's the thing that bothered me most. Like, she comes out yeah. and he's already halfway through it. It's like, hang on a yeah. second, don't I get a say? Like, but I, th- I think I think all of what we've said about... What, what you've said about it up to this point, and James, what you said as well, is true. But all of this is why, within the narrative of the film, it's, it's the wrong decision decision for him but the film's unambiguous about the fact that it's the wrong decision for him. even as he's doing it you know watching it this is probably the wrong decision and immediately the film shows that it is the wrong decision and he recognizes the, that it's the wrong decision and he goes to change it so you know the the film is about superman making that horrible mistake and the film is utterly unambiguous about the fact that it's a mistake where i have trouble is can i accept a superman film where superman would make that mistake because is Superman not supposed to be someone who wouldn't make that mistake? And this is where, as I say, I feel like I'm maybe being a bit hypocritical because I kind of feel like it's okay to tell a story in which Superman gets something wrong. But did I not say about Man of Steel that I didn't feel that it was okay for 
Superman to make a mistake and make the wrong I think, decision. I think your why, why thought am I process okay? Seb, why am I more seeing, okay with it here? Well, because this film shows it to be the wrong decision and shows him <laughs> correcting that decision. I guess. Yeah. Um, I think that's fair. But I, I mean, it, it's the point. It's the point is like you know. I I think Superman is is an important character in terms of being the guy who who does the right thing and has an infallible moral sense. But equally, I don't think that means that you can't ever show him making mistakes. I just think you have to be careful how you do it. And maybe the issue is with Man of Steel that I don't think the film is actually considering the implications of him doing the wrong thing. <laughs> I was going to say I don't think the film considers it the wrong thing. Like the film is like Man of Steel is mm. saying. You know, of course he has to kill Zod because that's his responsibility. Which mm. whether or you agree with it or not, of course he has to let his dad die instead of revealing his his powers. Yeah, like <laughs> I think I have yeah, a problem. The, with the film these... thinks that it's the right thing. So I think I have a problem with the Superman movies in general and their stakes. And I mean, I know we argued for a long time about this in the first film. I don't like that he turns back time at the end of the movie. I don't think it works. Um, I know lots of people disagree. I know you disagree, Seb. Do they? Um, Hang on, no, do I? Did I disagree? I th- I... Are you sure? Yeah, I thought you did. <laughs> did we not argue about this? About This remember. feels like something we all agree on. Okay, yeah. well, uh, in, in well, which case, well, fine. I would be surprised if I'd argued that it was a good thing at the end of Superman 1, because I think it's a, a, a dreadful thing at the end of Superman 2. Um, but... Um, um, but yeah, my, my my point being that I think generally in these Superman movies, I I feel like they have an issue with stakes that that the first film is able to wipe out everything with him going back, and that in this film he gives up being Superman, and the only price he pays ultimately is getting beaten up by a guy in a in a. Right. Reiner. So this is this is where again I have to make a comparison with the Donner Cut because this is the the one point where I think the Donner Cut totally unambiguously gets it right and the Lester Cut gets it wrong, which is in both cases he goes back to the fortress and he gets his powers back. Um but in the the Lester Cut um while I think again like I say you know the sort of the conversation that he has with his mother's hologram in, in terms of justifying it in some ways are better than than the the one with the Marlon Brando hologram. But when he goes back to the fortress, like he just gets it. It's just like, oh, there's one crystal left and that will magically give him his powers back and it's all okay. It's, it's awful storytelling <laughs> and it just completely undermines everything that's happened up to that point. Mm-hmm. In the Donner Cut... The point is, there's still the whole thing with the crystal, but the point is basically he gets under, you know, he he talks to the Brando hologram again and gets another message, and the Brando hologram basically says, "Well, look, I knew this would probably happen. It's like I knew you were going to make this mistake. I knew you were going to say you'd want to give up your powers, but I, I, so what I did was I put one last bit of power in this crystal, but in order for it to work." all of what's left that's powering the the visions of me and powering the fortress and everything you have to give up so essentially and it's the line that they used for superman returns about the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son being a kryptonian prophecy essentially he has to absorb the the hologram power of jor-el in order to get his powers back and in doing so that means he can never talk to jor-el again so he sacrifices right, okay. being able to talk to his father and have advice from his father in order to get his powers back. It actually has stakes. It's meaningful. It's an actual sacrifice and it's a mm. torment for him. And and so he has basically, as a result of his bad decision, he has been punished. And, you know, so he still gets to come back and save the day, but he's lost his cost. father. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, and, and, which is and a like crucial relationship works. in the first movie. <laughs> yeah. 
And I don't. And well, I do understand why it's not the case in the Leicester Cup. It's because they didn't have Marlon. They couldn't use Marlon Brando's yeah. footage. But it's it is it is the one point I think where not having access to something from the Donna footage actively harms this version. Does it? Does any of it, this make sense though in the context? of how Superman gets his powers from the Yellow Sun. Like, I, it, surely they would just come back. Um, it's a bit McGuffin, well, no, isn't it? It's a bit like yeah, it's... you have to trust that whatever the molecular thingy uh, rearranger does... It would have been so much easier if they'd said it was gold kryptonite. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I do actually, I do really like the execution of the shot where he loses his powers. I like him kind of slowly separating from that Superman body in the machine and seeing it <laughs> I left think behind. that's weird, but that's that that's pure, that, that's Lester, that's, again, in Donner it's 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 different. But I just, I, I, I I just visually, no I, I visually like <laughs> how nice that visual. looks. Um, what, I, I, I can't remember whether this happens in the first film. One thing I did have a bit of a problem was, was um, when Clark transforms into Superman for the first time, we see him rip off his shirt and then his Clark clothes kind of just disappear and he's in the Superman suit. Um, <laughs> that looks weird and I... I'd like the way they do it on, you know, like Lois and Clark or Supergirl, which is that he rips open his, they, you know, the the shirt is ripped open. We see the Superman symbol and then we just accept that they're running off to become Superman. Or there is something really fast that happens, like in a revolving door where they switch. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to see like some magic making the clothes disappear. That's That doesn't, well, that I doesn't mean- seem like a power. <laughs> I, th- I think if you want to justify it, you could say that he flies so quickly that the friction burns away the clothes and they disappear. What a waste. I know. <laughs> but he's Superman. <laughs> you know. um, Shall we talk some... Uh, Shall we talk some Gene Hackman next? Uh, yeah, I was going to thought you were going to say Terrence Stump because we literally haven't talked I know, about I thought, but, yeah, I thought we should, but, we should yeah, save, them, save them till last. Um <laughs> Um, Gene Hackman comes back um, doing largely what he did in the first movie um, but he, not quite as malevolent because he is the secondary villain here so there is there is uh, there's something endearing about his villainy here mm. and he never actually you know directly does anything to Superman he just gives pieces of information to uh, to Zod and the fact that he's that his life is constantly being comedically threatened. Mm. Um, well, it's the it's the bit when like when Superman turns up at the Daily Planet and like Zod has just said that he's got no more use for Luther and he's going to kill him. And Superman turns up and Luther goes, "Superman, thank God! I mean, get him!" Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Gene Hackman's wonderful here, and you do wonder yeah. whether that there is there's a. I mean, does did they basically just use all of the Gene Hackman footage that that was already shot? I think they pretty much used everything they had. I'm just looking at a where's the, where's my list gone of what's actually in and what isn't because I think I think there are maybe bits that I mean to be honest if I, if I was Richard Lester I would have been tempted to cut out the whole bit with him um, escaping prison and flying off in the um, yeah, <laughs> hot just, air just, balloon. Just, the, I did notice his, his sidekick appeared to be Mr. Tumble as well. That's yeah, it's Otis. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I like how. Yeah, they, I almost wonder why they bothered bringing back Ned Beatty because yeah. they, they just want to sort of dispatch. <laughs> well, they just uh, and, and Miss and Miss Tashmacker, um, who yeah. is now. Why be- is Miss Tashmacker there? Yeah, she she's like, been betrayed she's horribly him. by him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess she's just there so that she can be there, sort of thing. But it's no, I I think there's probably you know there might be extended cuts of of 
scenes with Lex where they, you know, maybe didn't use little bits of footage. And I know there are some bits where they had to use doubles. So, like, the whole scene at the end in the fortress is two entirely different shooting sessions mixed together. Mm. Um, like, the the whole bit with the um, uh, the ridiculous s symbol that family guy took the piss out of <laughs> and the the disappearing hologram bit none of that is uh in the What's, none of that was shot by donna what is so the, if you ever see lex at any bit, of those Seb? points the what? bit where he rips off no, the no i know but what but what what's happening i didn't <laughs> I could, I, what what happened there what i think what, i'm I pretty no sure it's, it's without precedent what, what did, it is com- it is completely without precedent in the comics what, what did it what did it do I couldn't work out. It was a mild inconvenience. Mildly was a mild inconvenience. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I think there might be some bits where you see like the back of Lex's head and it's a body double. Yeah. Um, But otherwise, no, I I think, I think they, they did the best they could to use as much of his stuff because why wouldn't you? Well, you've, (laughs) you've lost Mal and Brando. So you're, you're not, you've not got Brando anymore. So, I mean, this movie starts off on the title sequence and the first name that flashes up is Gene Hackman. So he's probably he's still got top billing. Yeah. So you know, maybe you want to, you just you just stick everything of Gene Hackman in there. You can. I, I think the Hackman stuff is funny, and I I mm. I like I like the way they use him in this film. I think it's kind of necessary to to undercut because you've as you said, you know, it's so long before Zod and Superman are even on the screen together, and that Zod stuff. I mean, it's got the odd joke in it but it's pretty relentlessly bleak and again like in the in the Donner cut like the bit where they go to the white house goes on longer and is much more brutal um in terms of him just going there's a there's a bit where zod picks up somebody's machine gun and he's like ah and then he just like starts shooting a load of people with it grinning and it's like this is a guy who doesn't even need to use a gun but he's decided to shoot all of these people instead of going around punching them um you know so you kind of need something. Well, you need two two things. One, you need something to undercut it and lighten it a little bit. And two, you need something to anchor it back to the Superman films because you haven't got him sharing the screen with Superman. So you have another familiar character there instead. Um, and yeah, this, this version of Lex is just, you know, um, up until... Um, 80s John Byrne um, super powerful businessman Lex Luthor this is my favourite way to treat Lex which is yeah he's a baddie but um, you know he's he's not sort of he's not just ridiculously evil and he's, all it is is basically everything is entirely self-interested and so it's not that he wants to see the Kryptonian criminals kill everybody on the planet but it's just if they're going to do that he wants to try and get the best deal out of it for himself and get his beachfront property. I, I like that line about he wants Australia because there's so much beach in Australia. <laughs> I love that. I love that Australia is what he asked for because he's, he's, I mean, like he's, when he delivers that line, he's sat in the Oval Office with his feet up on the desk, um, you know, kind of just like, despite the facts that he, his, his life is under threat at this moment. And she's grinning at these three terrifying villains who could snap mm. him in two at any point, cheekily asking for Australia. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such a wonderfully overblown demand, and that he keeps that he keeps referring to himself as you know the planet's premier criminal mastermind. It's, it's, oh, I like when they call him ruler great. of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> when they finally come around towards the end of the film of not killing him. 
Uh, yeah, I, 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 I do really enjoy all the Hackman stuff in this film. Um, and I love that there's this sort of, like, even though I almost want to imagine that in between the two films, Lex has escaped prison a few times and been caught by Superman and put back in, because it feels like at the end, like, like it's that moment when he, when he's, he turned, you know, he basically superman tricks him into tricking him sort of thing with you know with the with the molecule chamber and superman does this really straight laced kind of see if you can get them to go in the chamber and lex completely buys it and superman's like you poisonous snake lex and then it turns out you know that he knew that's what he'd do and that seems to me to come not from the not knowing each other that well relationship that they have in the first film that is a, a superman and a lex luther who have butted heads many many times and will butt heads many times again mm-hmm. and, and superman knowing exactly what lex will do and you know and the way that that lex is like oh yeah i was on your side we got them together yeah you know i um, i briefly works so well i briefly forgot that it was like superman who had like set up that thing and i was like hang on a second did does lex luther like save the world in this film <laughs> i mean the thing is i'd have even if that had been the case i'd have bought it because mm. i think like this version of lex does it's like Gene he is, he, well, he is aware of his own mortality. Mm. Like, I think he recognises that it's in his interests if those three aren't necessarily in charge. Unless they give him Australia. Well, unless they give him Australia, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the Kryptonians. Um, so, Terran Stamps, General Zod, uh, Sarah Douglas's Ursa, and Jack O'Halloran's Non. Um... I know Non was created specifically for this movie. Was Ursa created for the movie as well? Yes. And so, yeah. and Zod, I imagine Zod has to be a pre-existing big... Yeah, Zod, Zod pre-existed. Um, not sure if he, if he actually first appeared in, in Superboy comics, but either way, he was, yeah, he was from the 60s. He was a, a Kryptonian villain. Has he always he been one of the big... big like, has he always been one of the big Superman villains? Because, I mean, you know, now he... he He's probably one of the best known between mm, yeah. between being used in the two movie franchises. He, I mean, he would he would have been the the other obvious one after Lex Luthor right. to use in a movie, not least because he's super powered. Like you know, he's never. I wouldn't have thought before then that he would have been someone who everyone would have heard of or that kind of thing. But he was definitely a recurring villain who had shown up. You know, and the whole thing of the Phantom Zone and there being the criminals in the Phantom Zone was definitely a thing beforehand. Um, I'd say I'm pretty sure Zod probably had other underlings. Um, they weren't called Ursa and Non, but um, you know I'm sure there were there were characters like that. Um, and then John Byrne in the 80s, when he did the modern version of Zod, had a female character and a brutish muscle character, but gave them different names, but but had a similar dynamic of the three of them. Um, as, as as far as I'm concerned, the any anyone who really likes Superman two and thinks it's better than the first one so james you might you might be the person to ask here um <laughs> the reason is because of these three these these they zod is a great villain um and ursa and non um i mean non gets a lot of comedic beats um but the, ursa and non are also you know really good you 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 by the end of the film you know how they're going to act in any uh given situation which is pretty strong for two kind of you know like for for, 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 for Zod's yeah psychic muscle, 
Um, so James, is that a, a, are these three crucial to why you like this film? Yeah, I mean, it, to an extent. Like, I think aside from Superman, I'd say that uh, aside from Lex Luthor, I think they're probably Superman's best villains. Like, I know, you know, including the comics. Um, just because I mean, I, I, it's the idea of them being like so much more powerful than he is, and yet he can still beat them like that to me is an interesting dynamic especially because you know one of the things people complain about with superman is he's so powerful who can face him well these three can Mm. and that you know i find that interesting because he's got to beat them by being better than they are in in every other way except physically so that's yeah that's what interests me about the villains and that's why why i like the film because it's an interesting relationship I mean, so the, the, that that certainly is true from a power a power set perspective. <laughs> um, but in terms of this film specifically, I mean, Terrence Stamp Zod is an all time superhero movie villain, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Neil before Zod. I don't know whether that was a phrase from the comics, but that's I that's an iconic movie line. I love his obsession with people kneeling him. <laughs> yeah, um, but it is. But it is. It like everyone when when Zod was announced as the villain for Man of Steel. I mean, mm. all, all all basically my knowledge of Zod was kneel before Zod. I mean, that's yeah. that's a that's a line that people would know, even if they haven't seen this movie, they'll know kneel before Zod because it's an iconic line from pop culture. I mean, as 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 much as we just uh, we just spent a while talking about how how much fun Gene Hackman is, like, uh, and you know, and you know how much I love Christopher Reeve's performance as Superman generally. Like, um, Zod is the best thing about this movie easily, and not when he's flying around fighting Superman. I think a lot of the reason why a lot of comic book fans have always liked this movie so much is because it's the movie in which Superman actually fights super powered bad guys. It's not so much that; it's just that every line that he gets is golden like every <laughs> bit of delivery even though there's a lot of stuff with particularly when they're first arriving on earth and stuff where there's so much inconsistency in terms of how much do they recognize as being similar to where they come from and how much like you know they've been on the moon and they've been flying around and they can tell that they have powers but then they land on earth and like he walks on the water thinking that it's the ground but like surely he surely they had water on krypton you know surely they had late <laughs> so there's little things like that where it's like you know and and how and also how can they speak english it's all kinds of stuff like that in, as much as I would say that, though, other than that, everything else that he says and does is just, like, a joy. It's things like, you know, why do you say these things to me when you know I will kill you for them? And, um... Yeah. Well, and, and um, he has this... He has this cold-blooded look in his eyes from start to finish that even when they're get him, getting him to deliver the, you know, the, the more comedic stuff, like, um... Uh, the, the, the president of Houston... <laughs> Uh, no, of Earth, of oh, Earth. Oh, God. It, Zod. <laughs> but he does, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's a commitment to being terrifying even when the material is fluffy. Yeah. <laughs> he is he's a legitimately scary villain. And I think um, the costume design is great. It's camp as hell. You know, with the chests out and the slits <laughs> in the legs and the and the kind of PVC it's very disco, boots. Isn't it? yeah, I, I think it's very kind of like a softcore sex dungeon stuff um, <laughs> that, that they're in, quite frankly. Um, but it it works for these three characters. Um, 
And I really like as well how he gets bored so quickly. Like he <laughs> takes over, and it's like the thing that he wants is to take over a planet, and then he achieves it, and then he's like, "Oh, now what?" No, cause, yeah, because the the line at the start of the film is finally somewhere to rule, and then he mm. rules, and the first thing he says is, "There no one who on this puny planet who can challenge me." It's it's wonderful how quickly mm. he's like, "Yeah, I've got everything I want." Oh, now, oh. And then, and then he, think, you know, because of because of Lex, figures out that it's Superman, and that this is this is Jor-El's son, and that there is an opportunity for revenge. Um, and and that's you know, like literally, his motivations in this film are rule and revenge. Um, it's it's wonderful supervillain stuff. Like it, it's, thing... it's, it's pure in terms of those those drives as well. The thing I like most about uh, Zod and Ursa are how they kind of look down on Superman's like compassion and sentimentality, mm-hmm. and it's like it's classic, like the thing they think makes him weak is actually what makes him strong. Mm. It's that they literally don't understand it as well. Yeah. It's like you know, oh, he seems to have affection. She's like, like pets. I imagine so. It's like they they can't even comprehend that. Yeah, he has and it's like it's properly, there. you know, they're just so evil. <laughs> I do, I do think that the Ursa is great as well. I think yeah. she's a really good counterpoint yeah. to Zod, and I think Sarah Douglas is fantastic. And it's you know again, she's really sinister. The thing that she has about like constantly taking souvenirs off all the people she kills, <laughs> she, she, she gradually accumulates all these badges yeah. over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, and I think you know without just being the same as Zod, she's also got this just completely malevolent sense about her, and I think is really good. Yeah, because he is he is completely dispassionate cold-blooded evil whereas she doesn't feel dispassionate she feels almost kind of revels yeah there's 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 an enjoyment to so when when zod kills the man on the moon he kind of just rips his thing off and lets him go whereas Mm. she walks right up to the guy rips his suit open and then stands over him kind of grit it is yeah she she's fantastic and non just for his physicality i think is worth the while I think one interesting thing about Ursa as well is that they didn't, like, gender her evil in any way. Like, there's nothing mm. she does in the film that couldn't have been done by a male character. Yeah. The, I guess the only thing is establishing the rivalry with her and Lois. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that feels more for Lois's sake, so she can get a moment at the end than it does. Well, again, it's a, it's a kind of, like, dark reflection take on, like, the relation. Like, there's no, not really any sexual dimension between her and Zod. No, but mm. in the sense of their interactions, like them being a duo. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he calls her my dear a few times, but other than that, there's, there's no <laughs> that's just Terrence Stamp being a lovey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, the the one thing that I mean, I, I I don't really get hugely excited by the action in this film, and when they're fighting on the street, I mean, I I mm. you know I'm fine if if the attraction is seeing Superman fight someone else that's super powered. Um, I, I, I read someone say, and I think it's it's a quite good description of it that it feels like a turn-based game, <laughs> like yeah. you know, and it's, it's one of these things where you know we we are looking at a film from um, you know thirty plus years ago um, f- through modern eyes, but um, 
you know, it, there isn't any pace to it, and it is weird the way that they sort of take turns to throw things at each other. And it's got good moments. Like, you know, I, I've talked about it before, and I think I talked about it in comparison to Man of Steel when I wrote about that at the time. But the bit with the bus, you know, and it's like, how do you defeat Superman? You don't defeat Superman by being stronger than him, you defeat him by threatening people. Um, and that's how he, that's, you know, um, I really like that that moment because it's the moment that Man of Steel doesn't have where Zod is threatening people and Superman, you know, backs down. Instead, Superman snaps his neck, but hey-ho. Um, so was... it's got moments like that, but it's 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 not what excites me about the film. And it's like I'd, I, when they're doing all of that, I'd rather they go back to Terence Stamp saying witty lines and delivering them with calm menace yeah. than him flying around. I did want angry. a bit I did want a bit more concern almost from Christopher Reeve in those sequences. Like when the the woman has the um the like debris fall on her leg and I was expecting Superman to fly straight over and pull it off and he doesn't. He just reemerges from under the street and gets back to fighting Zod. And I, I just thought there was there was maybe a couple of little beats where um, Superman could feel as heroic as he did in the first movie, and as and, mm. and, and, and as pure. But I guess you know the argument is that he is a guy that's made a mistake and given up his powers, and even though he's gone and got them back, that maybe this is a you know a, a Superman on an arc. Uh, if you want, if you want to be, if you want to be kind to the film, um, the big final fight in the. In the Fortress of Solitude, what do what do you think about taking it back to the Fortress of Solitude, um, as a you know as as a place to stage that final battle? Does it work? Do do, do we need to go back there, or is it is well, it, it like just the depowering thing? Um, I mean, but... it does. There's a bit bit of a like plot hole in that Superman disappears and they go to the fortress and he's there, like they don't know he's there. Well, it's it's only that no, like Lex um, knows where his Lex says he's probably gone yeah. there. Yeah. Well, yeah, 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 but like they they give the impression he's led them back there. Do you not think? Uh, well, no. What happens is Superman goes. Yeah, to re- and Superman goes to regroup, that... and then they go to yeah. his fortress. And I, th- I, and I think it's just it's yeah, it's another one of those little leaps you have to make. This is where he lives. Yeah. <laughs> Lex, like, I I know, I know where yeah. he'll be. I've been there before. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and and and. That final battle there. Um, do you like? Do you, do you like all the the kind of the the mischief of Superman? Because that's that's what I I prefer all that kind of stuff in the final fight than I do the fight in Metropolis. I like I like the multiple Supermen and I like. Um, what game is he talking about that he played as a kid? He says, I always used to play this game as a kid. What, the mysterious multiple hologram teleporting <laughs> game? I don't think we had that in our playground. Um, what, literally, what game is he referring to? That's a good point, because I'm guessing, like, he doesn't, yeah. Spot I think Richard Lester, may, you know, Richard Lester may have forgotten that Superman didn't grow up on Krypton, is what I'm guessing happened in that scene. Uh, it could be, could be, actually. Um... But yeah, it's I'm yeah, it's okay. It's just, I mean, what I like about that final scene is is the switcheroo bit, yes. and it's because of how it works with with Superman and Lex, and you get a lot of Zod being smarmy. Um, so that's the stuff I like in that final scene. Um, I mean, again, because I, I don't want it to sound like I'm coming down on on the Donna side and not the Lester side because I've, my, I, I we haven't got to my biggest complaint about Donna yet, um, but. 
the stuff that Donna shot is all the stuff with Gene Hackman and the switcheroo and the power thing, mm. um, and the stuff that Lester shot is the bit with the holograms and stuff. And uh, yeah, I just think I just think it's a bit of unnecessary padding <laughs> think, because they've cut stuff from elsewhere. <laughs> I think it's fine, Seb, to to air towards the Donna stuff because. Um, you know, it's it, this was never going to be an easy set situation for Richard Lester, was it? To patch this film back together and have restrictions to as to the people who are working with you um, and the people who, um, you know, like maybe the, the actors that are available to you and all that kind of stuff. Um, it must have been a very difficult situation for him to work on, under, whereas Donna is literally, you know, in, in the same production as... Um, as the first Superman, he, you know, he's, he's basically just carrying on. I mean, I saw like, um, John Barry died on the set of Empire Strikes Back in, in between these two films. Um, and so, you know, that, that was or in between the Donna filming and the Lester filming. So then like any new sets that <laughs> Lester was going to build, he didn't have John Barry, which, you know, you've got one of the mm. all time greats there who's no longer available to you. And, um, like I said, the editor Stuart Baird um, pulled out, and Gene Hackman wouldn't come back. And um, they didn't have um, John yes. Williams, did they? Yeah, it's obviously they used the theme, but it's a it's a not very brilliantly arranged version of the. <laughs> yeah, and again, and that 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 kind of that kind of um, you know sours me slightly on uh, on that opening sequence with the flashbacks and stuff because the music isn't as strong, and it does, and literally you're like, mm. ah, this doesn't sound right, and it flashes up. <laughs> Music by such and such, based on the composition of uh, of John Williams. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think it must have. It's it's such an unbelievably difficult job for Richard Lester to come in and do. Um, you know, even even though three quarters of the footage ends up being his, it's it is to an extent a thankless task, and. I, I think you've got you've got a feel for him, so I wouldn't feel bad at all about <laughs> edging on the on the Donna side throughout. Um, going back to that final scene, though, uh, does does Superman what what happens to Zod and Ursa and Non? Where where do they this, go? Yeah, when this is something I was going to. I choose to believe <laughs> that there is uh, a load of bubble wrap and mattresses at the bottom of those pits. The, well, the interesting thing about this is that there is a scene that Richard Donner shot that is sometimes that was sometimes used on TV broadcast, but which isn't in the Rich Donner cut as was released, um, which shows them all being arrested. At I the was end. literally, so the I was literally about to say yeah. the thing this film is missing is them being hauled off to jail at the end. Yeah. So they've well, they they they, they so that was shot. So that was the intent, and I don't know why he didn't use it in the Donner cut. Because actually, in the Donner cut, the other thing that it restores is the bit where Superman blows up the entire Fortress of Solitude with his heat vision. Um, so if you don't have the scene before that where they get arrested, you could, and also Lex Luthor's nowhere to be seen at that point, so you can only surmise that he's blown up the Fortress of Solitude <laughs> with Zod and Ursa and Non and Lex Luthor. <laughs> but so basically, he's able to depower them and... Mm. But I mean, in in this version of the film, is there anything that explains that they that they won't ever be able to get their powers back? Or I like, mean, you know? in this cut, you can assume at best that they froze to death in the Arctic. <laughs> no, I think I think they're just they're held in some kind of there's they, you don't know how deep the pit is. They're trapped. He'll take them away. They'll go to prison, and. Superman is only able to get his powers back via Kryptonian technology that they will not have access to because they'll be in prison. I think is basically 
I, either they die or they're in prison powerless. I was going to say, it's not like I didn't read this as he killed them, but it does feel like a bit of a dangling thread that we don't see them go to jail. Mm. Yeah. I mean, most people assume, and as I say, you know, if, if their intent was not that they should be killed, then it's a failure on the part of the film because most people I know who've seen this, because people made this argument over Man of Steel, yeah. they were like, well, he kills them at the end of at the end of Superman 2. Now, my argument to that is I know that the intent was not for that to be the case, but if that intent doesn't come across in the film, then that's a fault of the film, you know. Yeah, I mean, they... They clearly cut that scene of them being arrested out to leave it ambiguous as to whether they're alive or not. So that's an interesting, mm. like, deliberate omission that they've made. Yeah. I think yeah. maybe they wanted to leave it and let the audience decide whether they're dead or not. Like, I mean, I would guess the cynical part of me thinks, like, probably they thought, well, these guys are good. Maybe we'll bring them back for the threequel. Mm-hmm. But... And that's why they didn't show what their actual fate was. Yeah, that that sounds likely. That sounds. Um, but yeah, I think my reading of the film is not that they're dead. Certainly, so I'm interested mm. to hear that there was a scene that definitively showed there wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um. Can we talk about the very end of the movie? Um. And and mm-hmm. and not Superman going back to fight that guy again. Oh, but I am going to talk about yeah. it. Um, but oh, okay, well we'll get oh, to that in a second. Me, I'm going to talk about that. The, the Clark and Lois <laughs> resolution. So does he? He yep. wipes her memory. Yep. Why? Um, I mean, I don't know why. Well, I know why. It's for narrative convenience, well, but no, it's awful. Okay. I mean, it's the reason why he does it is because, like, being in knowing what she knows, but not being able to be with him is hurting her. So he has compassion for that and but again i don't her memories i don't like, think that's... the film i don't think the film prior to that point s- sells you on the idea that they can't be together while he's superman i know well, exactly i never because... went into that during the film because they've never had a stretch of time where they're trying to do that and it's failed yeah, yeah. they you just haven't seen that not be successful they just like... leave the fortress and then she's accepted that it can't happen mm. and and yeah and and it feels it feels like a cheat almost to have to, have him walk into the scene and Lois be like, oh, you know, kind of, kind of almost her wanting her memory wipes. Like, I'd, that, that doesn't seem like something that Lois Lane, crack reporter, would want to happen. Oh, please remove my memory of these last three days where all of this insane stuff happened. Like it. Mm. I mean, they could I just, have... I, really I feel like they could have softened the scene by having her say, like, I wish I'd never found out or something. Like, that Yeah, that some, would have yeah. been fine. Or not fine, but it mm. would have been better. Whereas as it is, Superman makes this unilateral decision to, like, erase her memories. Mm. Mm. With I mean, I th- one th- of his I previously... awful, indefensible moment. Yeah. Like, Are you going to say previously unforeseen power? Yeah. Because it was actually something that... Apparently it was something that was possible in the comic. <laughs> uh, he, like the, 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 I don't know if specifically with a kiss or not, but that, that has pressed. Like in, in, in fairness, in I'm like, I'm not a kind of, do- I'm not like dogmatic about the, <laughs> the Superman's power set. Like I enjoy when he just mm. has crazy new powers for no reason. Um, like when the Kryptonians can suddenly point and have yeah. telekinesis. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> but just 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 on a on a film level, though, it's you know you kind of want that kind of thing established. You want you want that <laughs> yeah. just yeah. the the grain of an idea that Superman can do that to be to be planted mm-hmm. earlier on. 
Um, but out, but outside of the technicality of it, as I say, it's just it's 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 wretched. There is there is no good reason for it to happen. I hate it when films do. Um, I hate memory wipe as a dramatic. I, I mean, it, it's it, it's bad as a trope anyway. But in in this instance, with it being Superman, with it being Superman making this decision, that's you know a non consensual decision to invade her memory and wipe her memory. It's awful. And also, it's like, like I, I said this on Twitter after rewatching it, like that it's. Honestly, it's as bad as anything that Man of Steel does. It really, it really sours the film for I me. Mean, it's, it's I mean, like, I don't like. I don't get it that badly because it's kind of the the film is already in sort of closer to you know fifties hokum territory by the time it happens. Hmm. So I'm kind of yeah, okay, sure, why not? It doesn't feel like actively malicious, just stupid. Hmm. But like for me the problem with it is that it doesn't really fix the problem because she figured out he was Superman before, like what's to stop so it happening again? Figure out yeah. again? Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, all of, all of this stuff has happened to the world and she's going to be like, well, where was I during that? And that's going to, well, yeah, actually thinking again, and, like thinking about it, know. that like that decision could have made sense if he had told her that he was Superman mm. rather than her figuring it out then his decision to remove that knowledge would have at least had, you know, some kind of, mm. yeah, like, justifiable through line. Mm. I think but, it's it's a device um, that in fiction, it, 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 when it's used, it has to be used so perfectly. It has to be so justified. Yeah, like, and it, has like to, it was and it all has a dream. To... Like, if you're going to do something that that obvious... And narratively cheap, you have to have a very good reason for doing it. Because you're just wiping out the main arc of this movie, which is how the Clark-Lois relationship progresses. Because this film could have ended with a new setup of, you know, and it's something that the the comics hadn't done at that point, but would eventually do in the 90s, of Clark and Lois are a couple and she knows that he's Superman. Imagine how bold that would have been to have that as the... Well, maybe like maybe film. in that sense we're being too harsh Everything on it has to be because reset. the film is operating in a world where the dynamic is the dynamic and has to be restored. Mm. And yeah, and you know, at the time the comics would have been in a... And well, I mean, by the late 70s they were, they were starting to do things like, you know, Clark Kent becoming a TV reporter. But essentially, you know, superhero comics were generally... Certainly superhero comics as people who would have gone to see this film when it came out would have remembered them. So I'm talking like 50s 60s comics were very much in the mold of whatever happens in the story nothing really changes and everything's still the same at the end so that you come back next month and it's still the same setup that you know Mm. you know that that's what comic storytelling was like and so it's kind of in that tradition um and you know it is there's a comparison to be made with the donnacut because the donnacut also does a reset but this is where we get to so the donnacut doesn't have the kiss this is where we get to the turn back time ending yes okay um so the and actually really when he's turning back time at the end of this at the end of the Donnacut um Lois's knowledge is not really the reason it's a byproduct yeah. because really yeah. what he's doing is he's undoing all of the devastation like th- if you think about it right in the Superman movie timeline as officially released as of the end of Superman 2 Mount Rushmore has faces <laughs> of Kryptonian criminals on it because that never gets changed uh, whereas when he turns back time you know it does do that so while the turn back time is such a horrible cop out of an ending at the end of Superman 1, and it's a horrible cop-out of an ending here, it does kind of make sense in that it's pretty much the only way for him to kind of go back and correct his mistake in terms of letting it happen and let all those people die in the first place. 
Unfortunately, while it gets rid of the kiss, it manages to, in the process, come up with the single worst thing that happens in any of the Superman films. Because in the Donner Cut, he turns back time, and after he has turned back time, he goes back to the diner. <laughs> And beats up the guy oh, who beat him up when he didn't have his powers. <laughs> Which means that in that timeline, he goes and beats up a guy who has never met him before oh, wow. for no reason. And yet, what's weird, and this, what I can't get my head around is how this happened, because that scene was 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 shot by Donna. Richard Donner is actually in that scene. He's like outside the bar oh, before okay. they arrive. He's got a walking cameo. So that is entirely Donner footage. And I do think that the the first scene is a really good scene. Like in yeah. terms of bringing down bringing him down at this point where he's just given up his powers and he thinks everything's going to be okay, but he still goes through life with the confidence of having his powers. It's a really good scene and it's really well done. The second half of the scene in both versions of the film it's terrible. In the in the Lester cut it is slightly better because at least you know, it's going back and getting revenge. But equally, it's not a very Superman thing to do to go and pick on somebody. Like, even if they've wronged him, he doesn't go and beat up somebody, you know, less powerful than him for, for reasons yeah. of vendetta. It's it's still... I mean, it'll get a cheer from the audience, but it's uncomfortable and I don't yeah, like me it. Because it's Superman punching down. But in the Donner Cut, it happens after he's turned back time, so there's no reason for it. And yet, the dialogue is all the same. So he still says to the guy, oh, I've been working out. But that guy's never met you before either. <laughs> so unless the original intent was for it to happen before yeah. he, sets, he turns back time. But if it was, why then why is it not put it? there yeah. in the in the recut? I just it's not even that it's a horrible character moment, which it is. It actually narratively does not make sense because he talks to someone who he's never met before as if he's met them before. It's just it's so bad. It's like and also it's the very very last moment of the film it's the triumphant end to the film <laughs> it's oh he's beaten up this arsehole trucker it's just it's, uh, it's baffling I was mostly baffling. upset that he'd wreck, wrecked everyone's dinners and smashed up a pinball machine well that's the other thing it's like you can't just go in and smash someone up and then hand them some money and go I'm sorry for the damage they've still got to get that damage sorted out they're still going to lose business there's insurance premiums are going to go way up yeah Seb, exactly in, it's just, in the Donner uh, Cup Horrible. In the Donnercut at the end of Superman 2 when he turns back time, where does he turn it back to? Because, like, what what's the point? Because um, which... Like... Pretty much be... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really it has to be how he... It has to be at least back until the end of the first Superman movie, if that's when... He, it's based... If that's when he was going to mm. be exploding... If that's what was going to be knocking no, that's out true. The it do, what it doesn't do is it doesn't establish how he um, how he then goes and stops the Kryptonians. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where uh, uh, unless he just he does it to, he does it back um, to when the first nuclear bomb was there, but he takes it he explodes it somewhere else in space, maybe. That's the only explanation. I think he I must go think. back to before they're released. Um, and you get this little bit where he's back at the planet office with Lois and and Perry, and they and they all go on about having slight deja vu and stuff. Right. And it's, um, but it's a, it says on Wikipedia to. to undo everything. Superman spins the Earth back in time, restoring the past few days, and placing Zod, Ursa, and Non back in the Phantom Zone. But then, but that missile would have still been. So does yeah. it go back to before Lex launches the missiles? 
in which case Lex Luthor is free and not in prison. It's it's it, oh, it creates so many questions. <laughs> yeah, it's just bad. It's just a bad. As I say, it's not as horrible as as the kiss. But I mean, maybe this is what I said back when um, we did Superman One. If if I was in any way defending the turn back time, it's. It's not as it works better at the end there. of Superman yeah. One as it is at the end. Of... The only reason it works better at the end of Superman Two is because of turning back the damage and stuff. But actually, you know, still that damage should be there as a testament to the fact that he made an awful mistake. Well, and and also, we can it. buy that Superman um, can go around and solve a lot of that damage because he's Superman. Mm. You know, I can I can, I can also, buy that he I mean, goes it, back to Mount Rushmore and recarves yeah. the original faces. And I think as well, you know, at the end of Super, at the end of the first Superman. Um, if it again, if it works in any way, and I know it's a thing that doesn't work brilliantly, but it's this moment of extreme emotional anger where that's what kind of compels him to kind of fly faster than he's ever flown before. It's not a suggestion that it's something that he can just do when he feels like it. The way it takes place at the end of Superman 2 is, oh, these bad things have happened. I'll just go and whiz the clock, the clock back. It's that thing you said about stakes. It's like, well, are there... If he can, And this is the problem people have with at the end of Superman 1, and maybe, again, you know, if this is why I wasn't as harsh on it, it's probably because I feel like it's, it's treated as a one-off because it just, you know, he gets pushed over the edge. In Superman 2, it is just, oh, I can wind back the clock. So well, why does it matter if anything happens, <laughs> you know, um, if he can just reverse yeah. it? It's like, well, if this happens again, will he just reverse time again? Yeah. You know? um, because it, it doesn't feel like a moment where he's like, ah, and fires off and does it. He just goes and does it like he's just cleaning up afterwards. Yeah. Okay, well, guys, I think we should probably, uh, you know... Uh, put a bit of a, a bow on the top of this and, and move on to the comics recommendations but I mean uh, from my point of view uh, there's still an awful lot to like in this film uh, there's still Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidd have been great mm. Gene Hackman is a bunch of fun Zod is one of the best superhero movie villains there has ever been and Ursa and Non are great fun as well but it's a compromised film, and it's a compromised film that it sounds like whatever version you watch it in, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't quite come together. And uh, 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 the movie that kept coming back to me when we were talking about this, both in terms of you know when you when you said about giving up his powers, but also in the relationship between a hero trying to be a hero and also pining after the person he loves. Um, I think the Raimi Spider-Man films do that stuff better. So, yeah. um, I mean, the Raimi Spider-Man films, I, we, I'm sure we have said this, like, do owe a lot to the the, the yeah, Superman films, yeah. and but they they do take some of the things that they do and and do it better. Yeah. Um, and and you guys, are you are you on a are you on a similar page to me? Similar similar thoughts yeah, in Superman I mean, two. It's funny because I, when I when I watched it for this, I did find my, I found myself getting a little bit annoyed with with aspects of it, and part of it to do with the way certain things were shot and the feel of it. And there are little things like there's a there's a kid in the in the town when they when they're in um, East Houston, <laughs> which always confused me as a kid because I always thought they were actually in Houston, Texas, where you know the play. I didn't realize that Houston was a massive city. I thought the place <laughs> where the space thing was was a little town. I didn't realize that they were and because I missed the line where it says East Houston, Idaho, and I didn't know U.S. geography as well. But um, but yeah, the, but there's a kid there talking with an English accent. They haven't even redubbed with an American accent. <laughs> I know it's that little things like that. Um, you know, and there are just a few things that are a bit clunky. But I think what we've ended up talking about more are, are the, other than the you know some of the stupid narrative mistakes, are the things that work. And actually, you know, any time 
either Terence Stamp or Gene Hackman are on screen, it's it's fantastic. I, and I wish Christopher Reeve got to spend more time on screen with either oh, of yeah, those two, yeah. because the three of them and four if you count Sarah Douglas and and five if you count Margot Kidder when she's on form are so good that it's yeah it's a shame that the film fragments them so much and i think i think you've got bits of a really great film but there's just something about it. and i say the fact that you've had two distinct versions of this film or three if you count the extended tv cut and none of them manage to make the story quite hang together in the way that the first film does and and that's why it falls down for me compared to the first film is that it's just it's just not it's not a satisfying story in any version what it is is a load of great moments and some duff moments. Yeah, and I think this first film is just a little bit richer and a bit more thematically dense and a bit more de- deliberate yeah. about what it's trying to do as well and the story it's trying to tell. Um, James, any final thoughts? Uh, I think the reason I enjoy this film probably more than the first is that I just I I think Christopher Reeve is so strong a version of Superman slash Clark Kent yeah. that that kind of the massive chunk of the first film where he's not even in it i just find tedious Mm. and this film with all its faults is ultimately more enjoyable for me it's a a superman film that has super christopher superman in all of it yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i I will say while i don't necessarily recommend watching the entire donna cut go and find that one scene that was cut together from the screen test because one it's just a really great clark and lois scene and two the bits that are from christopher reeve's original screen test um where weirdly he looks quite like john ham like his clark in that screen test looks more like superman than clark just superman with glasses (laughs) um but you just see how how much he was on that character like from day one like he was he was perfect in the role even when he was just screen testing for it um so it's worth watching from that point of view and it's just yeah it's a really fun little vignette so i say i wouldn't necessarily say go and watch the whole donna cut unless you already unequivocally love the film but at least see that scene i think it's i think it's it's enriching to go and see that yeah i think it's fair to say we're probably not going to devote a full episode to the donna cut at any point so um <laughs> no. yeah this we, we we've hopefully addressed it sufficiently in this podcast and I, I i think we probably have um so recommendations you guys based on superman 2 um what have you got for me here okay the first recommendation because i'm going to give you two because one's very short is uh an arc from action comics from probably what 10 years ago now Close to 10 years ago, uh, called Last Sun, which is co-written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner. Oh. Uh, And I believe it's probably his, what you can call his last statement on Superman. Uh, But the interesting thing is that it has General Zod in. It's basically, well, it's not only that, but it's, it's where they made the Richard Donner version of Krypton the official continuity version of Krypton um, <laughs> in the comics it hadn't been that way before and they made it, it, it it's a retcon story and it's the first time that Ursa and Non appeared in the comics as well so it's it's Zod and Ursa and Non and it's the first time that the latter yeah. two were used I mean it's it's collected as Last Son um, the actual issues S-O-N yeah last, uh, yeah, last S-O-N uh, the, the issues that are in that comic uh, in that collection sorry are Action Comics 844 to 847, uh, 851's in there, which I'm not sure if that's an epilogue or something, Seb. 
Uh, no, what happened? Oh God, was, it wasn't one of these uh, scheduling they... <laughs> things, was it? Oh Jesus! Yeah, they did. They did four issues, and then they hadn't finished the last one, and it took about six months to get the last part out. Uh, so they, they just carried on releasing comics before. Okay, so yeah, okay, so it is. And then I think there's is there an annual in yeah, there? Yeah, annual annual eleven annual. is in there. Yeah, yeah, I was buying it at the time. It was really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and the other one is just another single. It's a single issue story by John Byrne. Uh, Seb probably knows which one I'm going to recommend at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Which is from 1988, uh, and it's Superman Volume Two, Issue 22. Uh, I'm not sure how much I want to give away of this. Can I just? point out that this is actually the third part of a three-part story yeah i was i I know it's kind of self-contained i was gonna say i don't think it's like i haven't read it for a long time but i don't think that you have to have read the other two for it to make sense you sort no it's it's it is kind of a story in its own right but it is the third chapter of a of a story i think the problem is i wouldn't i thought about recommending this actually this is probably what you thought i might recommend yeah um, and but my my um, I didn't want to recommend the whole three part story because the first two parts aren't really about General Zod and um, they're also wrapped up in massively confusing continuity <laughs> stuff. So <laughs> let's well, let's, I'll let's be interested to, to know if you issue. can read issue twenty two. I'm, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> yeah, give it a try. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a single issue and a and a mini series, I guess. Um, Seb, what have you got for me? Is it are you staying Superman or are you? Yes, okay. uh, I'm going to recommend you one of my favourite ever Superman stories. You say this every time, Seb. You say this every time. <laughs> well, yeah, I have a lot of favourites, but I think I think this one is this one is a really strong contender for the best Superman story of all time. Um, now I know you've tended to struggle a little bit when we recommend anything earlier than the 1980s. Um, I know you don't totally get on with the style of Silver Age storytelling and the pacing and that kind of thing. Uh, but I think there are, well, there are a few reasons that I want to recommend this. So this is issue 149 of Superman. It's from November 1961. Uh, it's written by Jerry Siegel, who was one of the original Superman co-creators who kind of came back to DC to do a bunch of stuff for Superman in the 60s. Yeah. And it's drawn by Kurt Swan, who is like the definitive Superman artist, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's a story called The Death of Superman. Uh, so it's not The Death of Superman from the 90s. <laughs> it's the original Death of Superman story from the 60s. This is one of the first, if not the first, examples of DC doing an imaginary story, as they called them. So uh, I, I mentioned kind of before about how comics at this point were, particularly DC, not so much when Marvel got going, um, were, were trapped in this thing of um, the status quo doesn't change. You know, everything has to be reset at the end. Everything's kind of in a perpetual state of stasis. And you can probably imagine that, like, as a writer, you would start to feel quite frustrated by this and you would want to tell stories that actually had some sense of closure or that actually moved things on. So DC came up with the concept of the imaginary story, which is basically, it's like a Marvel what if. It's pretty much the same concept, but but DC called them imaginary stories. And most of the best Superman stories and some of the best Batman stories as well were actually imaginary stories. Like, a lot of the real classics of the Silver Age were stories that weren't actually part of the proper continuity. Continuity. What do they call that now? Um, they, there's a term for that now, isn't there? 
Elseworlds, Elseworlds, yeah. It's it's kind of distinct from Elseworlds because Elseworlds sort of have built into their premise the idea that this is on that something in the conception is different. So right. it's like on another world where something's completely different. The idea of this imaginary stories are more logical conclusions. They're more possible endings. Oh, so like what? So, so like Marvel's What If? Were you, were you listening when I said that? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> did, you, did you zone out? Um, no, they are. They, they are like what-ifs, essentially. But So they, they, they tend to take the, the, the current continuity as a starting point, and then they follow something through to a conclusion. So in this instance, it's the death of Superman. And Superman, I don't want to spoiler it, but Superman dies. literally dies in the story. Like, And it's not a trick. And, you know, he doesn't come back to life. He is literally killed in this story. Um, so part of the reason that I wanted to recommend this is um, just that I love it. It's brilliant. It's Lex Luthor is the villain, and it's a. I don't want to say what he does in the first. It's the story's kind of split into three parts because that's the other thing actually structurally. Um, at the time, DC's um, comics tended to be you'd have three like eight page stories um, in a single issue and but by 1961 Marvel had come along and had started to do full stories in a single comic and DC started to respond to this by trying out this idea so they called them book length stories and it was like a single issue was a whole story, which obviously now seems weird because now to us a single issue is short but then it was long so it split into three chapters and what Lex Luthor does in the first chapter as the starting point of his plan is just unbelievable it's brilliant it is one of the most inspired ideas i've ever read in a story i just it's just 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 the 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 logical like just the leap of logic is just amazing i just i, I so i love it this is one of my favorite ever stories <laughs> i might have to go and read this i wanted to well. recommend it have you never read it james no. have i not banged on about this story to nope. you before um oh it's funny well you should go and read it it's wonderful um but the other reason that i wanted to recommend it is we have tended with superman and the superman movies to recommend you comics that come from post-crisis era. And I, you haven't really read a Superman comic that is from the era that feeds into the movies. So you've tended to read Superman comics that are a bit more modern and that sort of move on the concept a bit more and will have a slightly different setup for Clark and Lois and that will have the businessman John Byrne version of Lex Luthor as the villain. Um, this is classic-style Superman. This is Lex Luthor is an evil criminal mastermind. This is Lex the closest that you will find him to the Gene Hackman version, right. although a little bit more evil. Um, you know, this is the Lois can never find out that that Clark is Superman, you know, Perry and Jimmy at the Daily Planet. You know, th- this is your sort of, your your pure Silver Age Superman that, that the films take as their starting point. So I just think it's it's interesting for you to finally read something that predates the movie rather than post-dating it. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, um, that, I mean, sounds like a, a good range of Superman there for me. Um, I mean, I've probably taken longer to describe it than it'll take you to read it, but... Oh, man. Um, <laughs> You're in for it. Yeah, I, will, I, I do tend to enjoy the Superman, rec- the Superman recommendations on this podcast, so, uh, yeah, definitely look forward to those. Um, but we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch and uh, riffing on the Richard Donner, uh, Richard Lester relationship on uh, Superman 2. I want to know if you could replace the director during production of any superhero movie, who would it be... And who would you replace them with? So, um, James, I'll come to you first. So, just to check, is the concept of this, we replace the director of an existing superhero film? It can exist already? Midway- 
Yeah, it could. It, you could be like in the middle of Spider-Man Three. We pull out Sam Raimi and we put in Steven Spielberg, or it could be in the middle of um, Justice League, which is currently shooting. We get rid of Zack Snyder and we bring in I don't know. Yeah, but it's a it's a film and director pairing that we replace with someone else. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think I would like to have. Like the only the only Marvel film which is an absolute undeniable duff, as far as I'm concerned, is The Incredible Hulk. And I love The Incredible Hulk, so I'd like to see that film done again. That said, I think there's no way to completely save that film by splicing in a new director. So the only way to do it is to take a director who could make it so insane that it would be artistically worth seeing a knackered film. Uh, so I think... I can't even remember who directed The Incredible Hulk. You're going to have to remind me. Um, Louis Leterrier, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was it. So replace him with David Lynch and see what comes out. <laughs> oh, throwing David Lynch in halfway through any movie to patch something together is an attractive prospect. <laughs> well, yeah, because um, let's face it, half the time you can't even tell whether he's been directing the whole of his own film. I mean, so, and I've, I've seen David Lynch do split personality stuff before as well. Well, exactly. Like that's, yeah. you know, thematically there's a, there's a link to the text of the film. Oh, Seb, you, um, you, you might yeah. be in for a bit of trouble of denying James a rare victory here. <laughs> David Lynch doing The Incredible Hulk. I like that. Um, <laughs> have you got anything better in your arsenal, Seb? Well, I mean, I kind of went quite predictable, really. Um, <laughs> Did you want to replace I... Richard Lester with Richard Donner? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think if we could go to Man of Steel and approximately five minutes into production, replace Zack Snyder with a broom handle with an upturned bucket on its head, we would get a better movie. <laughs> Oh, Replace him with Gus Van Sant from James Silent Bob. James. <laughs> uh, let let anyone deny that it would have been a better movie if it was directed <laughs> by a broom handle with an upturned bucket on its head. I got a text from Reese after our award show going, Joe, how did you allow that to happen? How did you allow Man of Steel to be your worst movie? I was like, I got outvoted. And he was like, another example that democracy is wrong. Um, and I, yeah. <laughs> Team Reese on that one. Um, I yeah, be, said because you have given a James answer, I have to give the win <laughs> to James. But also James. No, to, no. Let, let's be fair. It's it's not because I gave a James answer. It's because a James gave an answer that you yes. liked, and b you like Man of Steel. I don't so like Man of Steel. I agree just, with my. Premise. I just don't hate it so quite as much as you do. Said. Let's be fair. <laughs> but that, that that is normally I think James's this is a fair win for James. This is not a default no, win for James. No, but it was it was a, it was a walkover victory. Uh, I'm happy well. to have it. He 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 put he put more thought into his than I did. But equally, I put more thought into uh... mine than Zack Snyder. So. <laughs> uh, you pointed at it. You walked up to it, and you. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Well, we're going to have to put some kind of ban on discussing Man of Steel on this podcast. Um, Wait till we get to Superman 3. Yeah. Okay. Or Superman Returns. I'm looking forward to Richard Pryor, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I mean, but it's taken us a while to get from Superman to Superman 2. Over a year. 
Yeah, that's because we kept having to do other flipping Superman movies yes. last year. <laughs> Two Superman movies last year. And we'll get to Lois and Clark at some point as well. I guarantee it. Um, but if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com. And you can get in touch on Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com and speaking of Twitter at CU underscore podcast awards 2016 we need to revisit them the vote was put out there for you listeners what was our best film of 2016 was it Ghost World was it Spider-Man 2 and by quite a margin you said Spider-Man 2 Um, so you made the decision that we I, I feel like some people ignored our instruction that they should only vote if they'd seen. Yeah, someone literally. I'm not saying that it's not a fair win, but I think the margin <laughs> shows that some people probably had. I think we did World slightly World. throw Ghost World to the Wolves with that one. Yeah, yeah. But hey, like, look, we, we didn't swing the axe, but we were we, watching as it got ripped to bits. We were the David Cameron of this situation. We didn't make the decision, but we certainly made the ill, the you know the. <laughs> the poor decision to put it to the people um, but hey they made a better dis- <laughs> Spider-Man 2 is definitely a better choice than Brexit um, so <laughs> yeah I mean I don't think we want to give the impression that we didn't want Spider-Man oh, 2 oh no we loved the them both the whole point was that we couldn't yeah we couldn't choose between them so it's an entirely worthy winner yeah uh, it was a decision that we were incapable of making and we were willing to let someone the, else make it for us, whether or the not that politics was the right of populism have succeeded again. And well, on that note, I guess all that remains to be said is thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. There's a new face in Gotham, and soon his name will be all over town, to say nothing of his legs and feet and spleen and head. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Batman, Mask of the Phantasm.